Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. When I was two years old, when I was dedicated to the cause of Lucifer, I was at that point a generation which I was laying there hold me as if I was me. I couldn't talk. I couldn't open my eyes. I, I believe my eyes were all right back in my head. There was evidence of human sacrifice on this fight. One of my first questions I asked was, God, there evidence of human sacrifice on this fight? Okay, guys, welcome to Conspiranormal. And we are doing a usually a earlier than normal show today. Well, normal for us. Uh, anybody that's listening to a podcast version, you listen to it at any time, of course. That's the magic of time travel. But uh, we are once again calling the UK. It is about 11 o'clock or so our time and 5 o'clock for this for our guests that we have on. And I would like to welcome on uh, a guest that I heard on another podcast and about a topic that I have been a little skeptical on. And that has been kind of the whole connections with the current music industry, with the Illuminati symbolism and all these kind of things. And I've always kind of looked at that as just kind of a continuation of the kind of the satanic panic and the uh, stuff that was going on in the 80s with heavy metal. And so I've always kind of, for lack of a better term, poo-pooed that idea. But then I heard the guests that we have on today on another podcast, and a lot of the things that he said made a lot of sense compared to some of the other topics that we've talked about on this show. And that is Mark Devlin. Mark, welcome to Conspiracy Normal. Good to be on, man. Thanks for inviting me. Hey, thank you for coming on. I, I kind of want to get a little bit of, of feel for you and who you are, kind of your background and some of the time that you have spent, because you've spent a lot of time, uh, most of your career, as a part of the music industry. Right. Well, I've been a DJ for the last 26 years, a radio and club DJ. So I started out 
on my first radio station in 1990, close to where I live in Oxford. And I was doing sort of background stuff, making the tea, helping out in the studio, dog's body tasks, you know. And um, I learnt the craft through that. And then over the next several years, I worked my way up to starting to present shows. And uh, then I got club gigs off the back of that. And so I've been doing that for quite a number of years. And it was my main livelihood. That was my main job for about 20 years. And uh, for most of that time, I was just a part of the industry machine, you might say. So I was doing everything that was expected of you as a DJ, just playing my part, promoting records and, you know, feeding back information to record companies and promo companies, interviewing artists, all that sort of thing. And it wasn't really until 2010 that I came to some startling, stunning realisations about the true nature of what's really going on in this world and the nature of this reality and the part that the corporate music industry plays in the overall agenda of human enslavement and mass mind control, which is the dynamic we have at work in the world today and has been for a very long time. And I'm sure that won't be too shocking a revelation to most of your audience. I'm sure they've figured this uh, fact out. But my special area of interest from that point on was discovering how the industry that I'd been a part of uh, was involved in this overall process. And it was very important to me to work out how I myself had been mind-controlled and taken in and duped by this agenda. And so I set myself on the path of some quite deep research in uncovering all the different kind of nuts and bolts aspects or the minutiae of, of how this actually plays out in the music industry. And the result of that was the book that I put out at the start of this year, Musical Truth. And it brings together everything that I'd come to understand in five years worth of research. It took 13 months to write. And uh, from the point that I published the book, everything that I understood, everything that I'd come to know about how the music industry plays its part is between the covers of that book. I have to say that since the book was published... I've discovered a whole lot more and I've come to realise that it goes even deeper than I'd thought when I put the book out. So <laughs> that there is a lot of stuff that I could talk about that is not in the book that I've discovered since, but most of what I know is in the book and I really felt the need to put it out there to communicate to people uh, truth as I understood it and to get the information out there as widely as possible, because I think it's vital that people understand how they're all being duped and they're all being taken for mugs, just the same way that I was. And they need to understand that the entertainment industry is there for some very nefarious purposes, and it's very far from the fun... Uh, leisurely entertainment that, that we think of it as you know there's a lot of stuff going on beneath the surface and I think anyone that wants to know truth and wants to know what's really going on in this world is going to want to pay attention to some of the finer detail okay well it, I, I want to ask you uh, to kind of add to what you just said what was the what was kind of like one of the main events that caused you to go down this path of investigating this material what changed for you at a certain point? The first thing that I came across in terms of what plays out in the music industry was 
a whole bunch of occult symbolism that I saw cropping up in music videos and in promotional pictures and record sleeves and live stage shows and that sort of thing. And I noticed the same symbols were cropping up time and time again with all the A-list artists, all the household names that everyone's heard of. And I came to realise, first of all, that um, you know this was happening in the contemporary scene. But then I realised that these same signs and symbols could be traced back to previous years and previous decades and some of the big artists going right back to the 1970s, 1960s, even back to the 1950s. So to start with, it was the likes of Lady Gaga and Katy Perry and Miley Cyrus and Britney Spears, Jay-Z, Beyonce, Rihanna, Kanye West, those sort of artists. And uh, a huge amount of what I discovered came from the website Vigilant Citizen. I don't know if you're familiar with it, but VigilantCitizen.com. Yeah, the guy that runs that site goes into all the symbols and breaks down what they mean and gives you loads of examples of them in popular culture. So it was things like pyramids, all seeing eyes, uh, snakes, all this sort of stuff, uh, hand signals such as the 666 sign, which masquerades as OK, the OK sign, you know, because all these signs have an innocent sounding cover story to explain why everyone's flashing them up everywhere and then you have the horned hand you know the so-called uh baphomet hand sign that you see everywhere and the cover story for that is that it means i love you so that's nice and innocent sounding but you come to realize that there's got to be a reason why all these artists feel the need to flash up these signs spontaneously at live stage shows and things like that and you see other figures in popular culture flashing them up as well other celebrities sports stars hollywood actors supermodels and politicians doing these same symbols and that's what really first put me on the path to research because i wanted to understand what the hell was going on here and then one thing leads to another and you find yourself diving down many different rabbit holes and when i do my research online i usually find myself with at least 12 windows open on my computer at any given time so i'm (laughs) I'm darting between these 12 windows and cross-reference stuff and before you know it you're just getting tied up in knots with all this research and so uh you know from from the symbolism and the hand signals and stuff like that i started to look into some of the connections between these prominent artists and some very unsettling unsavory aspects such as pedophilia and satanism and satanic ritual abuse and dark occult rituals All these aspects are present in the corporate music industry and have been since the start. And people might like to ask themselves why that is. If music is all about entertainment, having a bit of fun, forgetting all the stresses and strains of the working week and just enjoying yourself with a bit of music, whether you're popping on a CD or whether you're going to see a live band or whatever, why do we find things like Satanism, paedophilia, links to organised crime absolutely everywhere? Because you do. And that's before you get into all the family links between so many of these prominent musicians and the military intelligence communities. So organisations such as the CIA, MI5 and MI6 here in Britain, the Tavistock Institute of Human Relations, uh, the Pentagon, the Defence Department, so many links back into these organisations. So very quickly you come to realise that this subject is extremely deep and it goes way beyond what you see on the glossy surface of a Miley Cyrus or Britney Spears video. There's so much more to know. And for any genuine truth seekers that really want to get to the bottom of all this stuff, you know, it goes very deep and you can tie yourself up in research for days and months if you really want to get to the bottom of of all of this. So, you know, you either want the truth or you don't. And if you do, you've got to be prepared to go wherever it takes you. 
Let's talk about, because you started in the book, you start off talking about the BBC and one BBC DJ in particular, and that was Jimmy Savile. Right. Uh, this was something that in the States has not been uh, focused on. I only heard about it from listening to some other podcasts mm-hmm. around the time that it started and then doing a little bit of research on it. But in the UK, this thing was huge because Savile was such a – well, he was an institution basically. He was such a mainstay of uh, the BBC radio and BBC television. Um, he had had so much influence as far as with like the Beatles and the Rolling Stones. Um, and this guy was considered – uh, and after he died, it was revealed that he was a huge pedophile, that he had raped uh, young girls. Uh, I think in, uh, they were all in their teens, and early boys. teens, I believe, and boys too. Interesting. Yep. Um, and that there was there was even some speculation that he was one of these guys that was uh, a go-between, that he secured children for – uh, some really serious politicians, even all the way up to the top. Sure. Yeah, Jimmy Savile was described as a national treasure, which says a lot for our nation and the institution <laughs> and the establishment, really. So he was this disc jockey who worked for the BBC for decades. I think he joined in the 1960s and he stayed with them pretty much up until his death in 2011. He was born on Halloween, incidentally, uh, Mm. which tells you a lot. And he died two days before his 85th birthday, I believe. Uh, But anyway, uh, this guy was the front man for Top of the Pops, which was this national institution, hugely popular television show running from the 1960s for several decades. He also worked on BBC Radio 1, national station, and he had other popular TV shows such as Jim or Fix It. And uh, there seems to be a lot of truth, a lot more truth to that particular title now that we understand various things about him. So Jim or Fix It was this show where he had a bunch of kids coming on and usually they'd sit you know, very close to him or sit on his lap. So he must have loved the fact that he was able to get away with that right in front of everyone's eyes. And these kids would ask Jim to fix it for them to meet someone famous or do something, you know, crazy or do something outrageous like parachute from a plane or something like that. And Jim would use his connections, you know, connections to make it happen. And it seems to be uh, a very thinly veiled mocking of the general public in terms of what was really going on because we've now come to understand that Jimmy Savile was, as you say, a prolific paedophile, child rapist and he was very heavily connected into the establishment and he is said to have been or has been found to have been a procurer of children for the rich and famous for these paedophile rings that run within the BBC. There is a massive complicity within the British Broadcasting Corporation in terms of a paedophile ring that's been operating for decades. And it ties into the world of politics. It goes right into uh, Parliament and the House of Commons and the House of Lords here in London. And it even goes all the way up to royalty, the royal family. So Jimmy Savile was a close personal friend of the royals and in particular Prince Charles. Lots of pictures of Jimmy Savile hanging out with Prince Charles. For Savile's 80th birthday, Prince Charles sent him a pair of gold cufflinks and they had a message engraved on them, which was, Dear Jimmy, no one will ever know what you have done for this country. Hmm. I think there could be a double meaning there. 
Jimmy Savile was also yeah. a close personal friend of Margaret Thatcher, the UK Prime Minister, for many years. And it's said that for several Christmases in a row, he would go and spend the time with her at her house. Can you imagine anything worse, any bigger nightmare than spending Christmas with Jimmy Savile? But anyway, <laughs> he did. Hide and so, children. Yeah. And so we only came to discover all the sordid truths about Savile about a year after he died. So when he did die in 2011, there were loads of glowing tributes all over the BBC. What a great man he was, you know, a national treasure, such a sad loss, because he used to masquerade behind uh, this public front of doing work for charity. And this is something you find a lot with these paedophiles once they eventually get exposed. Many of them hide behind philanthropy and charitable works, and they present a public face of themselves as these deeply caring individuals and these really nice people to completely throw you off the scent so that nobody would ever suspect them of being into what they really are. Jimmy Savile used to uh, volunteer for work at various hospitals. One of them was Leeds General Infirmary, where he volunteered as a night porter. And it later emerged that as well as paedophilia, Jimmy Savile was also into necrophilia, sex with dead bodies. You know, how sick can you get? And he volunteered to work in Leeds General Infirmary so that he had access to the mortuary and, you know, uh, unfettered access to uh, the dead bodies in there. It's just unbelievable. He also volunteered to work at Stoke Mandeville Hospital in Aylesbury, where he was involved in the spinal injuries unit. And this involved children that that were paralysed and that therefore were bedridden and, you know, revelations have now come forward that he had his way with many of these kids when they were, you know, paralysed and incapable of doing anything about it. So it really is incredibly sick. And it wasn't until a year or so after he died that all this stuff came out. And it does make me wonder whether it was supposed to come out, whether it was, you know, by random accident that these revelations made it out there was this guy called mark williams thomas an investigative journalist who initially worked for the bbc and i think he discovered some of this stuff about savile and he tried to alert bbc management about it but they didn't want to know so he went over to itv which is the rival tv channel to bbc of course it's still absolutely establishment and controlled in every in in every way but for some reason itv allowed this guy to do a documentary exposing savile and everything that he'd been up to so this came out i've seen that one i think yeah right this one came out in october 2012 and this was the one that absolutely shocked the nation because you had this guy that everyone had thought of as this lovely wonderful national institution this dj that we all know and love and you come to discover this terrible truth about what he was into so it makes me wonder whether there was some kind of oath of allegiance, some kind of arrangement which Savile had with the establishment, whereby he would be protected for life from scrutiny. But this oath or this contract expired upon his death. And so that's how, it, right, that's how it was that we were able to discover this after he'd gone. But it's pretty clear that he was just the tip of the iceberg. And a lot of people seem to be viewing him as an isolated case. They just say, oh, wasn't it, wasn't it terrible what Jimmy Savile was up to? And in the wake of the Savile revelations, the BBC started chucking a whole load of other washed-up, has-been celebrities at the public to imply that they too were involved in 
some sort of sordid activity of this type. So you had a bunch of people like Stuart Hall, a BBC presenter, and Dave Lee Travis and Jim Davidson, the comedian, and Rolf Harris, who was another BBC entertainer, and... uh, Max Clifford, who was a PR guy, and they were all kind of thrown to the dogs. And the public was sort of given the impression that, yeah, they were up to some sordid stuff as well. But look, we're dealing with it. We're doing something about it. But the truth is that Savile's connections, as I said, go very deep in the establishment. You've got the world of politics. You've got some very senior figures. You've got some aristocrats. You've got senior kind of oligarchs. And you've got the royals. And there seems to have been a desperation to lead the trail away from exposing what some of these figures were involved in and just giving the impression that it's a couple of washed up, worn out old entertainers that were up to some sleazy stuff in the 1970s as well. So, you know, it really is the tip of the iceberg and there's so much more to know. Well, you know, Mark, I'm a big fan of, uh, of punk rock. And one of the things that really blows my mind is that... Johnny Rotten, John Lydon, in 1978, in an interview, and this was not broadcast at the time, but was later, I think, included in some kind of special feature on a DVD or something or a CD, that uh, he had said, stated that there was something wrong with Jimmy Savile, that the guy was a pervert. This was in 1978 that this happened. And... When I read that in the book, and I had known about it before, but I started thinking about uh, – I'm sure you're familiar with the Sex Pistols, the um, the infamous interview that they had with Bill Grundy on, the, oh, on yeah, TV. Oh, yeah, for sure. Right? Yeah. You know, the, the, the filthy lucre and all that kind of stuff. That, uh, and, and, you know, Bill Grundy, in the, when I look back on it now, he's actually hitting on the girls yeah. in the studio. And Steve Jones, you know, calls him out on it. And it makes me think, did people just know at the time that all these guys were these pedophiles and these perverts and it just was common knowledge, but nobody really wanted to talk about it? Well, it could well be. In the Johnny Rotten interview that you're referring to, he's saying there's all kinds of people I'd like to kill, he says. He says, I'd like to kill Jimmy Savile. I bet he's into all kinds of sordidness that we're not supposed to talk about on the television. Right. At Jimmy Savile's funeral... In 2011, one of the people that turned up was the boxer Frank Bruno. I don't know if you guys know Frank Bruno. No. He's a black boxer and he's a bit of a celebrity. He's done pantomime and, you know, been wheeled out on all these mainstream TV shows and stuff. He was a boxer in the 1980s, I think. So for some reason, Frank Bruno turns up alongside Mike Reed, who's a BBC Radio 1 DJ. Uh, you know, a contemporary of Savile. And they're there at Savile's funeral. And Frank Bruno says some very strange things. He says, uh, oh, Jimmy Savile was a great man, you know. Um, He did all kinds of things that I can't get into right now. And he says he helped me in all kinds of ways that I can't talk about on the television. What does that mean? And he appears in a very kind of dissociative state. He appears kind of out of it you know and with all the study that i've done of trauma-based mind control and how that works he certainly appears to be in some kind of mind controlled trance you know so it's very very strange and so many celebrities who were contemporary with savile that worked at the bbc when he did have since come out and said oh yeah we all kind of knew about him it was an open secret in the corporation but nobody was allowed to say anything so it seems Hmm. that everyone did know but you know there's there's an important point here which is this 
individual that has been presented to us as a national treasure, that was close personal friends with Prince Charles. He was brought in as an advisor to Prince Charles and Lady Diana, uh, Princess Diana, when their relationship started to fail, when their marriage was starting to break down. Jimmy Savile was brought into Kensington Palace as a sort of personal advisor. How the hell does that work? How is he qualified to do that? How did he get so close to Margaret Thatcher, the British Prime Minister, to go and spend Christmas with her in her home? How did he have access to all these other famous people? Why are the British public not completely up in arms about this? Why has no senior BBC Director General from any of those years, bearing in mind this stuff took place over a period of 40 years plus, none of them have ever as far as I'm aware, been investigated by the police or gone to court to testify as to what it is they knew and how it is that Savile was able to carry all this stuff out on BBC premises, which are paid for by licence payers in the UK. We have to pay a TV tax. <laughs> Not that many people yeah. bother anymore, but we, we are right, supposed Because BBC to... is funded by the government, so it's funded by the people. Right. Well, the BBC is yeah. a propaganda arm for the British government, basically. It's yeah. state-controlled. And so we're required to pay a tax, or we're supposed to anyway. Uh, <laughs> they know what they can do with that. Uh, but, you know, people have... The general public are paying for the upkeep of this organisation. Why are they not demanding that it shut down? You know, this should have spelt the end of the BBC. And at the very least, there should have been some very serious questions asked. And every BBC director general from the years where Savile was operational should have been called, uh, you know, to testify as to how this was allowed to get uh, to take place on their watch. And yet it's not happened. And yet the BBC continues and people are just going about their daily lives and just acting like, oh, wasn't it terrible about Jimmy Savile? Yeah, still. Anyway, what's for dinner tonight? You know, nobody is outraged by this. This should have been the story which, when it broke the surface, really lifted the lid on the whole sordid uh, cesspit that is the British institution and all the, the horrific stuff that goes on there. And yet it didn't. So, you know, it just leads me to wonder what is it going to take for people to truly wake up to what's going on and just rise up and say we're not having this anymore it seems we have a long way to go still there's another uh one other point that i wanted to make and uh you point this out in a in your book and also in a presentation that i saw you give online was uh about is it pugsy bear pugsy the bear, bear that yeah. is the symbol of the this uh this charity right and you say that there's some very disturbing aspects of that well, yeah, this is the BBC Children in Need. So, you know, are they taking, yeah. are they taking the piss? They do this every year. They roll out this uh, telethon in November of each year. And it's supposed to be for needy children, children in, in situations where they need your help, you know, such as being the victims of paedophilia, uh, perhaps, you know, just a thought. Uh, but they implore the public every year to give what you can, dig deep, come on, folks, you know, help these poor kids out. And I can't help thinking that there would be far fewer children in need if it wasn't for the BBC and those that it employs. But the sick thing about it is for a number of years, you had people like Jimmy Savile being wheeled out on this telethon as the public face of it. And he's saying, come on, folks, you know, give to these poor kids. And they wheeled out Gary Glitter one year. And Gary Glitter is a pop star from the 70s who was exposed as a vile paedophile 
back in the early 2000s, way ahead of the current glut of individuals that are getting outed. And so Gary right. Glitter was wheeled out one year, and Gary Glitter's taking place in this thing. And you have all these other DJs like Jonathan King and Chris Denning, who have also been exposed as paedophiles. You know, how much are people going to chalk this up as just a coincidence? Oh, there's another BBC DJ that turns out to have been a child rapist all these years. Oh, what a coincidence, eh? Why are people not making this connection and realising that this is institutionalised and it goes very, very deep? But yeah, the Children in Need thing has a mascot called Pudsy Bear, and it's a teddy bear, and it has a bandaged eye. So it has... uh, effectively one eye missing and one eye showing and going back to what i was talking about at the start some of the symbolism that i first came across from the likes of vigilant citizen a lot of it pertains to mind control and satanic ritual abuse and this goes right into what happens to many of these artists that become pop stars they're uh, abused sexually and in a ritualistic fashion from a very young age and there are various little telltale signs that are placed right there in plain sight and later on if you like we can get into the reasons why they put all this stuff in plain sight when you might think they would choose to keep it all concealed but they give you little indicators of what's going on and when it comes to mind control and satanic ritual abuse one of them is mutilated dolls and mutilated teddy bears so these are symbols of the innocence of youth the innocence of childhood you know, the the doll that you love, the teddy bear that you love. And they're pictured with an arm missing or a leg missing or an eye missing, such as Pudsy Bear. And then some of the other symbolism, you know, when you get into the all-seeing eye, the one eye, you see so many pop stars over the years that have been covering one eye for some reason. And you see all kinds of celebrities doing this, Hollywood actors and stuff. So with Pudsy Bear, you've got this symbol of childhood trauma with a mutilated eye you could say or an eye missing and one eye showing so it's two symbols for the price of one and for many years the bear appeared inside a pyramid Uh, that's the way it was depicted and all the while you've got these paedophiles you know being paraded on tv so talk about placing the truth in plain sight talk about giving you the opportunity to know it feels like for all these years they were mocking us with this mascot and yet that continues so every year you've still got children in need you've still got pudsy bear as the mascot and the general public still give their money to it and still don't seem to be able to make the connection between the true nature of the bbc and you know what's really going on in the world so that's why i say we've got a long way to go jeff from the leisure hour is here Hello, and Mark. He is uh, looks like he's chomping at the Hello. bit to ask a question. I am actually. Uh, I certainly don't. Uh, you've forgotten more than I've ever known about this about Jimmy Savile and all that. But um, I, the thing that I find really interesting about him, and I would love for you to sort of talk to this, is the guy. A lot of the times, whenever you have a pedophile and someone that's into stuff that's like way outside the norm, uh, it seems like they sort of want to stick in the shadows and you know not be not make a big fuss about anything, so to speak. And yet, he seems so driven and so ambitious, and he you know he works his way up the ranks and all that. I was wondering if you could sort of speak to that, sort of as his personality is concerned, is he sort of just that you know he also loved the uh, this is sort of an abstract way of looking at it but is it just that he had such a uh, personality that it's like well let's see if i can get away with it it was part of the thrill for him but kind of like a sociopathic yes uh do you think that that was sort of at play there or what are your thoughts on that 
Well, it's pretty clear that he was a psychopath and also a narcissist, and he did love the limelight. He did love uh, being, he reveled in this role of a national treasure. He did seem to love it. But I wonder also whether he was placed there, whether it was his role in life to be out there in the limelight, in the public spotlight, becoming a household name. Because you come to realise when you study the backgrounds of so many of these prominent figures that we have in popular culture. So not just... DJs and pop stars, not just people from the music industry, but Hollywood actors and, uh, you know, boxers like Frank Bruno that I mentioned, all the big sports stars and prominent politicians and then business leaders and so-called philanthropists. A lot of these people are what's referred to as lifetime actors. So they're presented to us as one thing and they have a public persona as a pop star or an actor or whatever, but their true nature lies somewhere else and we're often given an opportunity to know what their true nature is i'll give you one example which would be bill gates so bill gates is thought of as you know the front man of microsoft and this nerdy guy that just happened to invent this software company but of course you do the digging on bill gates and you don't have to dig very far to find out that he's very much into the eugenics movement planned parenthood specifically his father was uh, one of the main executives of planned parenthood which is this absolutely outrageous disgusting organization that's all about depopulation and if you look at some of the quotes of mary sanger who was the founder of planned parenthood and how she talks about the the masses you know the common people and the fact that they're basically just animals and you know this virus that just needs to be wiped out it's absolutely yeah, she was shocking. definitely a eugenicist for sure yeah for sure so bill yeah. gates comes out of that whole thing and then you find the bill and melinda gates foundation is involved with vaccination programs in africa and you know they're heavily involved with the united nations agenda 21 and all of that so you think to yourself well hang on a minute maybe bill gates isn't this microsoft guy first and foremost maybe he's a eugenicist and he's given to us as the front man of microsoft so that he's got a way of getting into the public eye so everyone knows who he is so you've got to ask yourself if this is what goes on the whole time and that could well be the case with Jimmy Savile. But there was a very interesting documentary which came out on BBC TV, of all things, in the early 2000s. I think it was 2000, actually. And it was called When Louis Met Jimmy. I don't know if you guys have heard of that. No. Right. Well, there was this television presenter called Louis Theroux, and he was a bit of a nerdy guy himself. And his speciality was uh, he did all these wild, wacky programs looking into uh, certain characters. And he had a very eccentric sort of interview style, and he would often draw out aspects of these people's personalities that other presenters wouldn't, just due to his nature. And so he did this one program all about Jimmy Savile. And there was some very revealing stuff in it. So he goes up to Jimmy Savile's flat in Roundhay Park, Leeds. Jimmy Savile, it's turned out, was a close associate of the Yorkshire Ripper, Peter Sutcliffe. And uh, one of the victims of the Yorkshire Ripper was discovered very close to where Jimmy Savile lived in Leeds. There's pictures of Jimmy Savile meeting Peter Sutcliffe, the Yorkshire Ripper, uh, in his Jeez. jail and in one of the pictures Jimmy Savile is introducing the aforementioned Frank Bruno to Peter Sutcliffe so isn't that an interesting link so uh, a lot of researchers are speculating on whether Savile was involved in some way with the Ripper murders given that he had an association with Peter Sutcliffe but whether he did or not Louis Theroux visits this flat of his in uh, Leeds near Roundhay Park and Savile's 
kind of showing off he's you know he, he seems to be someone that does love to talk about himself as you mentioned and he does a lot of that in this program and he shows louis this wardrobe full of women's clothes and he says oh these belong to my mother and he referred to his mother as the duchess so the first thing here is that some researchers think that they may well not have been his mother's clothes and is it possible that they were kind of trinkets or trophies of women that he might have been involved with, you know, raping or killing himself? I guess we can only speculate on that. But the other interesting thing is the fact that he refers to his mother as the Duchess. So we're getting into the concept of bloodlines here and genealogy, ancestry, which is very important to this story because you find with a lot of these these prominent figures they come from family bloodlines that go back many, many generations. And throughout all these generations, these people have been placed into the public eye in some way or other, whether it's through the world of politics, through the world of entertainment or whatever. So a lot of researchers think that Jimmy Savile may have come from some kind of significant occult bloodline and that he may have been some kind of wizard or sorcerer or dark occultist in his own right. There have certainly been stories where witnesses have come forward and said that they witnessed him uh, taking part in satanic ceremonies in various basements and dungeons and stuff, you know. And he seems to have been some sort of high priest of various satanic rituals. So why would that even be a surprise? So is it possible that his mother was, you know, a duchess, if you like, or from some important bloodline far more than we've come to... Uh, realise and that Jimmy Savile was placed in the public eye and given that role as a DJ specifically so that he he could become familiar to the general public nobody really liked this guy I remember his show Jim will fix it when I was a lad you know watching it and uh, he just gave me the creeps <laughs> I would talk yeah, about he's a creepy looking dude I oh, mean he for really sure. was I would talk yeah. about him with other kids at school and they'd say, oh, yeah, I don't like Jimmy Savile. He's, he's well creepy. So nobody ever seemed to like him. And yet he was always on TV. So mm -hmm. why is that? How does that work? He wasn't even a great DJ. And yet he was everywhere. And that's what they do. They have their chosen ones and they give them roles. These are lifetime actors. And it's all down to the bloodlines that they come from. And they're served up to us as cultural you know, figures or politicians or whatever, so that we become familiar with them. It seems to be very important to the overall plan. Let's talk about the mind control connection, because, I mean, this is something that we've talked about on this show a lot, uh, going into MK Ultra, what that was. Um, it, what's the connection here to mind control in the, in the music industry? And you actually use some examples, and some of the ones I'd like to hit um, that I thought stood out for me um, when reading the book was Britney Spears, Mariah Carey, and Nicki Minaj. Right. These are uh, you. You do a, a very good job of making the case that these people are broken. Well, they're the best examples we have. Those three, certainly. Yep. I would say. I would say so too. Is it a coincidence that those are three of my girlfriend's favorites? Damn. <laughs> Damn, she needs to start paying attention to some new artists, dude. <laughs> <laughs> no, she she likes a lot of good music too. Okay. Yeah, so we're talking trauma-based mind control. And it's very closely connected to this program of mass mind control known as MK Ultra, 
which came out of the CIA and its forerunner, the OSS. But actually, trauma-based mind control goes way back into the ancient world. There's evidence of it having been practiced in ancient Egypt and ancient Sumer and Babylon. So it seems to be something that's been carried forward through these generational bloodlines right the way up to present day. And it's absolutely rampant in the entertainment business today. So there's this division of MKUltra, which is known as Monarch Programming. And there's also a division known as Beta Programming, which is also known as Sex Kitten Programming programming and this is where you have women who are mind controlled programmed in a certain way and they're put out there as sex slaves effectively to the rich and famous or in some cases to other mind control subjects so the archetypal uh, beta sex kitten uh, icon would be marilyn monroe and there have been so many sure. women who have been shaped in Marilyn Monroe's image in the years since. It's all about that blonde hair and that kind of dissociated look. You know, Madonna appeared as Marilyn Monroe in her Material Girl video, which is interesting, isn't it? And then you've got Anna Nicole Smith, who was absolutely, without doubt, a mind control subject. And she was given to that old, rich billionaire guy, you know, as his kind of trophy wife. But in actual Mm -hmm. fact, she was playing the role of a sex slave. And, uh, you know, she died in some very strange circumstances as well, as did Paula Yates, who was the one-time partner of Bob Geldof, who's another very interesting and very dark character to get into. So that's one aspect of it. But monarch programming is what we see play out so much in the music industry. And when you get all these symbols and these little indicators that I mentioned earlier, these clues like teddy bears and broken mirrors and dolls and stuff like that. These are little visual uh, indicators of the fact that the artists in question have undergone this program of mind control. And the way it's done is many of these artists are got at from a very young age. So again, it's going into the bloodlines. You know, they're born into a particular family and this role of being a pop star or being a Hollywood actor or whatever it is, is laid out for them from the day they're born. So they really have no choice in the matter by virtue of the family that they're born into. So these roles are laid out for them and in preparation for them so that they can be completely controlled and so that they can be used to further a particular agenda and so that uh, their actions can all be directed and manipulated. They're subjected to these horrific levels of trauma from about the age of five or six, according to most reports. And, uh, It was discovered a very long time ago that the human mind, when it's exposed to horrific levels of overwhelming trauma, the only way that it can deal with what's happening to it is to dissociate from reality and to create these different personas, these different compartments, which are known as alters. So the mind basically shatters into these different uh, sections and it attempts to lock away these traumatic memories into the dark recesses of the mind in terms of these different personas. And it was discovered by those doing the programming that these different alters, these different personalities can be called forward at will by way of certain triggers. So it might be a trigger word or a phrase or a colour or a pattern or a sound but whatever is associated with that particular memory that particular personality it can be brought forward to the the forefront of that individual's personality and then tucked away again at will but the rest of the time 
this individual operates with their front altar, which is the version of them that people are familiar with, uh, through which they interact on a daily basis. But, you know, all these different other personalities can be brought forward. So sometimes they're triggered deliberately and other times they're triggered by accident you know, against the will of the programmers. Something about uh, something they're exposed to seems to bring it forward. And we've seen many examples of this through uh, a bunch of very familiar popular icons. So you mentioned three there. Two of them are fairly obvious. Britney Spears, when she had her famous breakdown in 2007, and she shaved right. off all her hair, and she started attacking cars with umbrellas and just going a bit crazy. You know, classic sign of the mind control programming wearing off, breaking down. And the other example would be Nicki Minaj, who is just mind controlled to the core of a bone marrow, you know, and it's fairly obvious that she is. She's presented as a Barbie doll, you know, one of her alter egos is Barbie, and she appears as this doll figure with uh, pink hair looking completely dissociated from reality. She's had these different alters and different personalities that she slips into in interviews. One of the famous ones was Roman Zelansky, which is a play on the convicted paedophile film director Roman Polanski. So she would slip into this alternative voice and just start speaking differently in the middle of interviews. And then a few years ago at the Grammy Awards, this very memorable year where Madonna performed basically a Masonic, Kabbalistic, occult ritual right in front of people's eyes, that same year... Nicki Minaj is said to have exorcised Roman Zelansky from her. So, you know, we're even getting into the realms of demonic possession here. There seems to be a thin line between dissociative identity, mind control and demonic possession when it comes to these artists. And then another example would be Mariah Carey, who is less obvious. But there's a story that I cite in the book from 2001 where Mariah Carey started going a bit crazy and she started rambling incoherently. And then she said to have attempted suicide. And this story broke the surface and it went public and her publicists were saying, oh, you know, Mariah uh, needs to go into rehab. And this is what you find a lot of the time. These artists start going a bit crazy and you have an incident like the Britney Spears one. And then they're said to have gone into rehab. And this is code for going back into the lab and having the programming topped up. And what a lot of researchers into this area will tell you is that when these artists are programmed from a very young age with these mind control uh, tactics when they reach the age of usually late 20s to early 30s you often see signs of the programming starting to wear off and some of the kind of innate humanity of the individual starting to bleed through from the programming and they start to regain some of their original memories and they start to you know remember who they really are and it's at that point that they have to be reprogrammed if they're going to be of any further use to the control system i mean another one is lindsay lohan who has been in and out of rehab God knows how many times. And, you know, I think most people are familiar with this. And you mentioned Lindsay Lohan or, uh, you know, Britney Spears to a lot of people. And they'll just say, oh, you know, they just go a bit crazy, don't they? I don't know what it is. It's just the world of celebrity. They seem to get into drugs and alcohol and they just behave that way. Yeah. And they just act a bit crazy. And so they blame just, it on the on the fame or they blame yeah. it on the pressure, these kind of things. Yeah, yeah. yeah. They, they just get away with it by 
giving this impression that oh it's the pressure of fame and there's a lot of drugs in Hollywood so of course these people go a bit crazy but what if there's more to know here Justin Bieber a few years ago came to London and he started acting really strange turning up to gigs in a gas mask and getting up on stage and just babbling you know nobody could understand what the hell he was talking about and then the next thing you know Justin Bieber's gone into rehab you know so there's so many indicators there's so many signs that all these artists are subject of trauma-based mind control it goes very very deep it goes way back to the early days of the industry and it ties in to things like satanic ritual abuse paedophilia uh, dark occult satanic rituals and connections into the military intelligence communities and again people can look at all of this and think how the hell can any of these elements be connected and uh you know, it's too much of a stretch to think that these people that we have paraded to us as celebrities can be involved with all this stuff. Well, the truth is the truth. And it's not always convenient. It's not always pleasant. And it doesn't matter whether any one individual believes it or not. It doesn't matter who scoffs at it and who says, oh, this can't possibly be true. I don't need to look at this. It's ridiculous. It goes on being the truth regardless. And that is exactly the kind of public reaction that is relied upon for this agenda to be continued. They want large numbers of people to say, oh, this sounds too fantastic. This sounds too ridiculous. Can't possibly be true. I'm not even going to look at this. For as long as large numbers of people say that, and take that attitude to it, guess what? Expect more of the same. It's not until people actually take the diligence and the responsibility to do the research and look at what's really going on that we stand to bring any of it to an end. So I know it's ugly, I know it's dark, I know it's horrific stuff to look into, but like I say, you either want truth or you don't. And if you do, you have to be prepared to go wherever it takes you. And in this story, it takes you very deep indeed what's the purpose of putting out these people as mind controlled? Uh, what's the purpose of doing that? Is it just because they're more easily controlled? Um, is it because they will do whatever that they're told to do and to um, do these performances or put out these music videos with these, with the symbolism? What's the, what's the ultimate purpose, the ultimate goal of that? It is because when, you have a celebrity in a mind-controlled state they are predictable they are programmable they can stick with the agenda uh you can shape and mold them in any way you want and they're not going to object to it because they're not in a position to they don't have the mental capacity to they don't want maverick independent artists who express themselves creatively who go out there and do their own thing there have been a number of these artists through the years that have kind of crept through and uh you can usually spot them in most cases because they're the ones that just happen to die at a very young age in one suspicious circumstance or another usually a suicide or an overdose so uh that tends to be the way that they deal with these truly independent spirited artists but for the rest of them they do like them mind controlled because they've got them right where they want them but it goes back to this concept of lifetime actors as well and they like to place their chosen ones in the public eye and serve them up to us in all these roles and it's very important for them to do this it goes back so far as well through so many generations and when you start to look at the genealogy of some of these individuals it becomes absolutely shocking so kim kardashian for instance you know what is she actually famous for can anyone answer the question i I, honestly i can't exactly (laughs) 
Paris Hilton. What is she famous for? What does she do? Well, I can tell you that they're both, I mean, they're both rich. They both have money. That's that's really it. No, we, we were told they're famous and then yeah. they were. Yeah, but exactly. why have people heard of them? Why do, everyone knows their names, but what have they actually done? They're because served up to us. It is imbued, the radio, it's everywhere. It's, it is basically a mind control thing where it's just the, the whole market is saturated. You can't turn on the radio, the TV, anything. You will hear their music or whatever they're doing. What, right. If they're married, they're getting divorced, all of this stuff, it's in your face constantly. Right. And so. the internet as well. So, so Kim Kardashian, you know, nobody seems to know what she's famous for. She's one of these people who's famous for being famous. But genealogists have discovered that apparently she is related through a number of, you know, uh, generations or cousins removed or whatever to the former British Prime Minister, David Cameron, who we've just got rid of. David Cameron, in turn, is a distant cousin of the Queen of England. Then you discover that George W. Bush and therefore George H.W. Bush and Barack Obama are also distant cousins, and that I think 42 or something like that of all the US presidents have bloodline uh, links, genealogical links, going into English royalty. So what are the chances of... That is 100% true. I think Martin Van Buren was the only one that did it. Right. So what are the chances of that happening just by accident, just by random chance? Then you get situations like uh, Brad Pitt and Angelina Jolie, who we've heard just this week of Split, are actually related. You know, who knew that? They're cousins, I think, you know, several times removed. But what are the chances of them just happening to come together like that and just happening to be Hollywood stars when they just happen to be cousins as well? Uh, Sherry Booth which is the maiden name of Sherry Blair, who was the wife of the psychopathic mass-murdering war criminal Tony Blair. Uh, It turns out that one of her ancestors was John Wilkes Booth, who is the guy that is said to have assassinated Abraham Lincoln. And so, you know, a hundred-odd years down the line, she crops up as the wife to the British Prime Minister. Then you have John Phillips of the Mamas and the Papas, just a a random example here. You know, one of the prominent bands that came out of Laurel Canyon in the 1960s, that counterculture era. And Uh, liked to have sex with his own daughter, by the way. Well, exactly. Mackenzie, yeah. Yeah. He uh, raped his own daughter on the eve of her marriage. Nice man. Anyway, uh, his first wife was uh, Susan Adams, and she was descended from the US President John Adams. So what are the chances of the descendant of an American president just happening to pop up as the wife of a prominent rock music artist several generations later? You know, all these bloodlines are interlinked and all these people that gain any kind of prominent position so that we've heard of them uh, go back into these ancient bloodlines and they have these ancestral links. So Kim Kardashian has been put together with Kanye. You know, does anyone believe that Kim and Kanye just fell hopelessly in love with each other. You know, their hearts beat for each other and it's this really romantic thing and they just had to be together. Or does it smack more of an arranged relationship? Talk about you. We were talking about, we mentioned eugenics earlier. I mean, this is what it is. This is eugenics. Basically it's putting the, the blue bloods and the, and the, the elite bloodlines together. Right. Right. But you have arranged relationships as well, such as 
Beyonce and Jay-Z, again, you know, are we to believe that Jay and Beyonce met each other at some party or whatever, discovered they had a lot in common, you know, maybe they're like the same pastor or something and you know they just got chatting and uh you know one thing led to another they started dating and then the next thing you know they're going out with each other i think it's probably more likely the case that their handlers their controllers because these all these artists have them placed them together because they thought wouldn't it be great to have two of our key assets two of our chosen ones in a relationship together where we can control them even more keep an eye right. on them and place them in the public eye so that they can do their job of mind controlling the people that worship them and leading them off down a particular path. That is what I think it's all about. It's social engineering. It's the shaping of values, of beliefs, of norms. It's telling the public what to think and what to believe about certain situations and doing it by way of these celebrities that people just worship and adore the way they're instructed to worship and adore them and unfortunately most people are so heavily programmed and in such a mind-controlled trance that they don't even realize it's going on they just are a manipulator's dream because they absolutely go wherever the agenda wants to take them there's another reason though why they place these individuals right there in plain sight for us. And they do give us the opportunity to know what's going on and to understand the true nature of these people and the agenda that they represent. So we're getting into the realms of free will consciousness, free will choice and consent. And this is quite a deep sort of metaphysical concept I don't know if you want to go into it right now, because if you've seen the book, you'll probably see that it forms a major part of the latter part of the book where I go into all this stuff. So, you know, we can either talk about it now or later on, as you prefer. Well, let's I want to actually get into I, I do want to talk about that. and We can lead into it. Um, the demonic possession aspect of it, because this is another thing that is fascinating to me. You know, I've heard of the whole thing about beyond you mentioned Beyonce. Right. And the whole her whole alter ego, the Sasha Fierce thing, and then you have this uh, Roman Zelansky as as a, you know the in relation to Nicki Minaj. Sure, you know, what's going on there? Well, so many of these artists have these alter egos that they slip into, and it's been a phenomenon that we've seen in fairly recent years within what can loosely be termed hip-hop and R&B and pop music generally. And I don't think of the stuff that we have today as hip-hop and R&B because I remember the days of real hip-hop and real R&B and Nicki Minaj and Rihanna and Beyonce and Kanye West and Drake are not real hip-hop and R&B. Whatever else they are, that is something that they're not. But unfortunately... Young people today have been conditioned to accept these artists as the real deal and as the trailblazers for those particular genres. And haven't they done a number on those particular styles of music? That's a whole different subject. And actually, I'll cover that in a a chapter in the book called The Systematic Degeneration of Hip Hop Culture, because they really have debased and degraded that whole scene. But anyway, uh, within what purports to be hip hop and R&B in, I would say, the last uh, probably... 10 to 12 years we've seen a big trend towards artists adopting these 
alter egos and these alternative personalities. So Eminem has had Slim Shady, and that's been a big part of his work, you know, ever since his first album. He's talked on track about battling these kind of inner demons, you know, and and having uh, just talking about being possessed. And Slim Shady just seems to be this alternate personality of his, which comes forth at certain points. And as Eminem's career has progressed, his music has got darker and darker to the point that He's actually talking about uh, being possessed by demons and, and battling this dark side of himself. And that seems to have had a parallel in Eminem's public life. You know, he was off the scene for quite some time when he was said to have developed an addiction to sleeping pills. And he was an alcoholic. And he came back very briefly and then sort of disappeared from the scene again. And he lost a lot of weight, got very gaunt and thin and looked quite ill, you know. So a lot of people that have studied this have questioned whether you know fiction has become reality here and where on record he's spoken about demonic possession and uh, battling all these demonic entities and stuff whether that's actually something that's playing out in his real life going way back in hip-hop you had an artist called cameron cameron who uh in about 1998 i think it was put out an album called confessions of fire and if people listen to the tracks on that, some of them are very dark. And again, he's talking about battling these demonic spirits that seem to be taking him over. DMX, the artist, had a track on one of his albums from right about the same time called Damien. And on track, you just hear this character who is quite clearly the sort of demonic entity known as Damien that is getting inside DMX's head and talking to him and coercing him into certain activities like going out and murdering people and uh, towards the end of the track he's talking about he feels he's in trouble because this Damien has taken him over he's taken over his personality and he put out another track featuring Damien a few years later where you know this thing has got even further into him and is directing all his actions then you got Beyonce as Sasha Fierce and that's her alter ego. And she's spoken in interviews about how she feels like this Sasha Fierce character takes her over. And when she goes on right. stage, she does all kinds of things under Sasha Fierce that she could never do as herself. Uh, she can only do it when she becomes Sasha Fierce. And then Jay-Z has been known as Jay-Hover. You know, he's got that old alter ego Kanye West has been known as Jesus you've got so many other artists that slip in and out of these different sort of personalities and these different alter egos there's a great book that went into this by a guy called Isaac Weishaupt which is obviously wordplay uh, he's a good friend of mine it's not his real name of course but he put out this book called Sacrifice Magic Behind the Mic and he really goes into this idea of demonic possession of hip-hop artists and the uh, indicators that are there to suggest that so many of the current glut of hip-hop MCs are probably under some form of occult uh, ritualistic possession. And he presents a lot of compelling uh, evidence to suggest this. That's probably the best book out there, I would say, in this particular genre that goes into it. But you've got to ask yourself why all these artists have all these alter egos and what the hell is going on here? And when you get something like Nicki Minaj with Roman Zelansky and then she actually talks of exorcising him in a public show... Uh, and she's surrounded by a guy dressed as the Pope and all these people in blood red satanic robes, you know. What the hell is going on? At what point does this stop being entertainment and start becoming dark occult rituals carried out right in front of our eyes with audiences of several million people when it comes to shows like the Super Bowl halftime and the Grammys where a lot of this stuff plays out? So Madonna's show of several years ago where 
she's depicted as some kind of grand priestess and there's all this Kabbalistic, Masonic, occult imagery being portrayed. Millions of ba- people around Baphomet the world. Baphomet Im- imagery as well, yeah. Right. Millions of people around the world would have seen all that stuff and absorbed it with no understanding of what's really going on, but it goes straight into the subconscious mind of the general public. And that's where the magic, with a K, works in the subconscious, because you're off your guard in terms of stuff that your subliminal mind absorbs. The conscious mind is not aware of all this stuff, but symbolism resides in the subconscious mind. That's why they utilize so much of this stuff, because they're literally mind-controlling large numbers of people through their subconscious, and what you absorb into your subconscious can actually dictate your thoughts, your belief systems, and your actions, the way you behave, the way you live your life. Psychologists and hypnotherapists will tell you this. You know, it's a big part of their... Uh, genre, they will tell you that uh, it's all to do with the subconscious mind. And the subconscious mind has been in the crosshairs of this malevolent control system for a very long time. And all these artists are used to target it. So let's talk about all these images that are being put out in music videos. Uh, You mentioned the uh, public performances, such as the halftime show or the Grammys, all these different... um, imagery, uh, occult symbolism, uh, the concept of ritual, and what is the purpose of putting that out there? And how can they, and and you mentioned the justification of it, and so I do want to get to that. Right, well, it's my belief that they give us the opportunity to know their true nature, what they're all about, what these artists are being used for at all points. But they do it in cryptic, encoded ways, very heavy on symbolism, often using numerology to the point that very few members of the public could reasonably be expected to know what's going on. But nevertheless, the opportunity is there to know if people show the vigilance to understand what these symbols mean and really go away and do the research and that's what people like me and many other researchers have done and we present our findings to other people so that they can understand what's being done you know people have busy lives it's understandable that they don't have the time to look into this stuff and to even bother to look into it you have to realize that there's a potential problem in the first place and that there is more to know about a madonna stage show or a Rihanna video, or whatever. So I believe that these dark occultists, this dark occult priest class that control the industry, because that's what it is, ultimately. Yes, there are greedy corporations that like to make loads of money off of artists, and people will often say, oh, there's nothing you know, particularly nefarious about what's going on. It's just corporations that like making loads of money. That's certainly an aspect to it. But if you're just going to leave it there and think that's the only motivation for what goes on, you're missing the point big time. Because the point is that those that run these industries are into the dark cult. They're into the workings of the nature of reality. They absolutely understand magic with a K, ceremonial magic. And they understand how you can shape and mould certain physical outcomes and manifestations according to the will and the intent 
and the consciousness that you apply to the situation. These are dynamics that are at play in creation, in the universe, and they're open to use by anyone that chooses to tap into them, as long as they have a knowledge of how these dynamics play out. So it doesn't have to be the case that only Satanists and dark occultists can use this kind of ritual magic to bring about their desired outcomes. Any of us can use these dynamics. So those of us that actually want to uplift humanity and, you know, increase consciousness and uh, put a bit of goodness and, and love and positivity back into the world, we can use all these facilities that are available to us just as much as these dark occultists are doing. It's just the fact that not enough of us realise this and are committed enough to applying it that the occultists are coming out on top because they are very uh, committed to what they want to bring about and they're very unified and all operating uh, according to the same plan. You know, they're on the same page together. That's why they get the job done. So... I believe that there is an understanding on their part of the dynamic that is in play in creation, which is known as natural law, or the law of cause and effect, of causality, karmic consequence, spiritual law, universal law. It's got many names. You can put whatever label on it you want, but the concept is always the same, which is we have free will consciousness as humans. It's our greatest gift. And we can choose to apply it in whatever way we see fit. And we bring about or we reap and bring upon ourselves a certain set of karmic consequences according to how closely we've chosen to align our thoughts and behaviours with the morality of natural law. So the golden rule of it can be summarised as do no harm or do not treat others in a way you would not wish to be treated yourself. It's the non-aggression principle. Uh, it's an expression of the sacred feminine in nature. Its counterpart is the self-defense principle, which can basically basically be summed up as take no shit. So, you know, <laughs> you, you, you should conduct yourself in a way that does not cause harm to others or take away their rights. And in turn, you have a right to expect that behavior of others. But if others choose to uh, break that and bring coercion and violence into your life and they seek to violate your rights and take them away, you then take on the right to do whatever is necessary to defend yourself, defend your rights. So that's the do no shit part, which is an expression of the sacred masculine in nature. So I believe that this concept is understood by these occultists. They realise that they should not be doing harm to us against our will. But if they tell us what they're doing, or if they give us the opportunity to know what's being done to us, and then we don't say, we're not with this, we're not having this, we do not accept this, that to them can be taken as our tacit approval or unspoken consent. So they believe that by not saying no, we've tacitly said yes. So they can then go right ahead and do what it is they'd always planned to do without having to reap the karmic consequence that would ordinarily bear down on them because we've not objected to it. So they're not doing it against our will. They're not violating our rights in any way because we've not said they can't do it. 
Okay, so I, I guess I guess that makes them feel like they can sleep at night. I suppose. Uh, well, you know, these individuals are psychopaths and they're mentally ill. Let's not lose sight of that. <laughs> Right. And so you would expect them to have a sick, twisted, distorted view of things. And in my view, they have misunderstood the way this spiritual uh, law works. And they've got a very uh, twisted interpretation of it. But it's the best explanation that I've got as to why they give us these clues and why they give us the opportunity to know what they're all about. And there are many other researchers that agree with me on this, I have to say, that have reached these conclusions, you know, off their own backs. And it does explain why they would do things like place clues in videos, stage shows, uh, promotional pictures. It does explain why they leave their calling cards everywhere. So when you see things like pyramids and all-seeing eyes in videos and you see the 666 sign and all this stuff, you know, these are all little indicators that let people know who are in the know what they're all about. So if you see an artist flashing up one of these symbols in a pop video, it's a method of communication. So on one level, another occultist can look at that and see, right, okay, so this artist is one of us. This is one of the chosen ones who is down with the agenda, who is controlled. Um, and then to the rest of the general public absorbing all this stuff, again, it goes into their subconscious mind. They have no clue as to what's going on, but it gets lodged there and it works its magic. It has its effect. But because the conscious mind isn't aware of it, you could tell somebody that they're being mind controlled by pop videos and they would deny it till the cows come home. They would say, no, nah, you're joking, mate. No, that can't happen to me. I'm too smart for that. You can't get me. And to these people, I would say, how many times... Right. Have you found yourself humming a song? It's ringing around your head and there's a certain point in the day where you think, hang on a minute, I've had this bloody song on my mind all day. And then you think back and if you rack your brains enough, you can remember you heard it on the breakfast show on the radio when you were driving to work at seven o'clock that morning. And now it's four o'clock in the afternoon and that song's been in your head all day and you've only just realised where you heard it. And yet these people will say, no, you can't get me. You, you, you can't get me. I'm too smart for that. And sometimes you find yourself humming a song and you don't even friggin' like it. <laughs> you, yeah, it's happened to me. You, you're yeah. humming a song and you think, I hate this song. And then you think, oh, my God, I heard it in an ad, didn't I? It was on that ad that, that I heard last night. It's a form of night. mind control in and of itself. Yeah. So they do get you. And it doesn't matter how smart you think you are and how beyond it you are. They understand how the subconscious mind works and they're, they're working on it the whole time. So when it comes to free will and consent, you know, I really do believe that they think that by getting our free will consent to a situation, when we don't say, hang on a minute, we're not having this, you can't do it. That's their green light to go right ahead and do it and not absorb the karma that, uh, you know, w would come into play ordinarily they've shifted the onus and the emphasis on us and so that's why it's very important for large numbers of people to understand how this metaphysical spiritual dynamic plays out how it's being used against us and how we can learn to spot the signs and symbols and the calling cards and get them out of the subconscious mind into the conscious where they can be understood and the spell can be broken and we can stop being the mind control subjects of you know these institutions it's a very good point mark thank you I I, I want to get to some of the earlier things because a lot of people think that what we've talked about so far has been more recent music, more the music video era, basically. But you do a good job in the book of 
looking at the roots of, you know, even going back to the Beatles, the Rolling Stones, uh, the Doors, um, which is all stuff that I really love and enjoy to this day. And also the Laurel Canyon uh, stuff is interesting. And this, this connection to intelligence communities. Right. With this, with the music from the sixties and the seventies. Right. Well, the work of Dave McGowan into the artists that came out of Laurel Canyon pretty much crops up in every interview that I do. And there's a reason for that because it's just so key to understanding where so many of these artists come from and these crucial connections back into the world of military intelligence. Dave McGowan did an awesome job of breaking down how that whole hippie counterculture scene that emerged out of the Laurel Canyon neighbourhood in Los Angeles in the mid to late 1960s had so many links back into uh, the CIA and the armed forces and the Pentagon and the Defence Department and various other expressions of the US government that uh, it goes way beyond the realms of coincidence. A lot of people have said that in those times, in the post-war decades in the US, you could have expected a large number of people's fathers to have been involved in the armed forces in some way. And that's true because, you know, in, in the years coming out of the Second World War, a lot of people did pursue military careers. And of course, there was the draft as well. And there were things like the Korean War and the Vietnam War, which saw to it that large numbers of young men were being called up into the armed forces. But what McGowan points out in his book, Weird Scenes Inside the Canyon, is that so many of the fathers of these prominent artists weren't just rank and file foot soldiers that were sent out there on the front line to do all the fighting. You know, these were senior figures admirals, generals, people very high up in these organisations and with very key positions in organisations like the CIA and such. So what are the chances of all these musicians that came out of that scene all having fathers and other family connections, often mothers, sisters, brothers, going back into these institutions? You know, again, it goes way beyond the realms of coincidence in my book. So McGowan did a great job of giving all these examples. And the famous one that you always hear, of course, is that Jim Morrison of the Doors, his father, Admiral George Stephen Morrison, was the US naval commander that was controlling the fleet of ships involved in the Gulf of Tonkin false flag right. incident which catapulted right. America into the, the Vietnam War. And he gives so many other examples, you know, Frank Zappa, who would have believed that Frank Zappa's father was involved in chemical weapons bio research for the US government working out of the Edgewood Arsenal military base in Maryland where Frank Zappa was born and grew up and so many other examples John Phillips of the Mamas and the Papas came from a career military intelligence family uh, pretty much all the key artists coming out of the Birds and Buffalo Springfield and Crosby Stills Nash and Young you know all came out of the CIA and the armed forces and all of that and all these other groups that came out of that scene and he asked the question why is it that so many of these artists congregated around Laurel Canyon anyway, when most people think of the epicentre of the hippie counterculture scene of the 1960s as being San Francisco, the Haight-Ashbury district? So Dave McGowan did a great job of showing how all these artists congregated around Laurel Canyon. For some reason, they were just drawn from all these surrounding areas all over the States and Canada and overseas, and they all happened to congregate in this particular community. And then in the book... 
he reveals that there was this covert military uh, installation right up there in the Hollywood Hills as part of Laurel Canyon that was known as Lookout Mountain. And this was involved in film work and photographic uh, production for various propaganda uh, projects on behalf of the Defense Department. And there are various interesting characters that worked there over the years, including Walt Disney, Marilyn Monroe and Ronald Reagan. Isn't that uh, a motley assortment? Mm. So uh, you've got a connection there, which takes some explaining away if this whole scene just evolved organically when you factor in all these family connections and stuff. But it goes much deeper than that, because, of course, all these artists that were emerging out of Laurel Canyon, it dovetailed into all these social changes that were happening at that time in the 1960s, specifically the emergence of LSD which just kind of appeared out of nowhere at this given point. And it tied in with the changing face of rock music. So the sounds were starting to get very experimental and psychedelic and tripped out. And at the same time, you had LSD coming on the scene and popularised by figures such as Timothy Leary, Dr. Timothy Leary, this groovy Harvard professor that kind of got kicked out of campus and, uh, you know, started to become this acid guru then. And he started to get all these kids to experiment with LSD and explore their consciousness and trip out and turn on, tune in, drop out, all that stuff, you know. And uh, then you had Ken Kesey and his merry pranksters who used to go around all these communities in California where all these kids were gathering at rock festivals and such and give out free tabs of acid. And I think a pertinent question would be, where did all this LSD come from? Because it was very expensive to produce and yet these guys seem to have endless supplies of it and at the same time, there was magic mushrooms coming on the scene as well. Another method of people tripping out and uh, going on psychedelic hallucinogenic trips and such. So then you do some digging into the backgrounds of many of these key characters and you discover that Timothy Leary and Ken Kesey were both assets of the CIA. And Ken Kesey, it would appear, who was the author of the book One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, was also an MK Ultra mind control subject himself, uh, worked in some of the institutions, but also would appear to have been uh, a sub Subject, you know, an experimental subject. You get guys like uh, Gordon Warson, who is uh, credited with having discovered magic mushrooms and their use on a leisurely basis as a kind of uh, psychoactive drug to bring about altered states of consciousness. Turns out through research from uh, Jan Irvin of Gnostic Media, uh, through a CIA pay requisition, which he got his hands on through a freedom of information request, that Gordon Warson was an asset of the CIA as well. And that the trip that he made down to Mexico, which was famously covered by Life magazine in 1957, uh, through which he became a popular icon, uh, was sponsored and paid for by the CIA. So everywhere you find the fingerprints of the intelligence communities. Then you get groups like the Beatles and the Rolling Stones. And many researchers, specifically a guy called Dr. Jonathan Coleman, who wrote the book The Committee of 300, among other things, and is a former British intelligence operative himself, have shown that the Beatles, or suggested very strongly, that the Beatles and the Rolling Stones were both products of the Tavistock Institute of Human Relations in London. 
which is this sort of think tank organization that's all about shaping cultural norms and values and perceptions, mass mind control, basically, and culture creation. And uh, a great many lifetime actors have come out of institutions like the Tavistock and also the Frankfurt School in Germany, which it's heavily linked to. And you also have links going into Oxford and Cambridge University in England, which would appear to be part of the program, and some of the big universities in the United States, specifically Stamford, uh, the Stamford Institution. So a lot of these characters seem to come out of these bases. And you see so many connections in the end and so many synchronistic overlaps between the key characters and so many things happening at very convenient points in time. So LSD arriving at just the point where the Beatles music was starting to change and got into these psychedelic realms, you know, and you had all these other groups coming out of the UK, such as Pink Floyd, that were making all this psychedelic tripped out music. And then over there in the States, you had all these artists coming out of Laurel Canyon and Hey Ashbury that were making similar kind of music that went hand in hand with the drugs that were on the scene at the time. And all the while you had the Vietnam War waging away, you had the arrival of the contraception pill and all the uh, changing attitudes towards sexual emancipation that that brought about. All these major changes to culture and behaviours and lifestyles all converging at the same time on both sides of the Atlantic. What are the chances of all that just happening by random chance? Or does it become more likely that they were all directed and manipulated by these institutions with these military intelligence links behind them? And all the key figures have all these family connections going back into these establishments you come to realize that all of this culture creation was made to happen none of it happened organically nothing happened as we're told it did why would that even be a surprise to anyone that's paying attention and has been paying attention in the last few years to what's really going on in the world that's utterly fascinating to think that there could be a social engineering aspect to the 60s, this this whole thing that we saw as organic and uh, revolutionary. I, I think time. that whole decade it was. all controlled, yeah. And, and we feel the ripples of it now, you know. Uh, people often point back to the 60s. When you uh, look at, let's say, sex scenes in films, you know, this is a story I've told before. When I was young, I can remember I'd be watching telly with my mum and dad and there'd be that embarrassing moment where you're watching a program and there's a sex scene and, you know, you're like 13 years old or something and you squirm in embarrassment because you sat there with your mum and your dad. And my dad always used to say, oh, it's the 60s. I blame the 60s for this. Isn't that interesting? You know, these relaxed attitudes towards sexuality and drug use and, uh, you know, uh, tripping out, uh, uh, sorry, un unplugging from conventional society and pursuing alternative lifestyles. People often trace that back to the 60s and they say, oh, yeah, that's the hippies that brought all that about. So, again, would these psychopathic controllers that like to uh, direct and manipulate every aspect of our lives have had left that to chance? Would they really have let that just evolve? Would they have let the Beatles and the Rolling Stones and groups like The Doors become as influential as they did just at random? You know, would they sit back and say, oh, well, yeah, you know, that's just the way it's working out? Or would they absolutely want to be in control of every aspect of that process? You know, I think it's pretty clear how I feel about it. Hmm. Well, I think in the time that we have left with each other, I think the pertinent question, and I think what everybody wants to know here, is this Paul dead? <laughs> right. <laughs> okay. 
This is always, I mean, I've always been skeptical about this, but I've always found it utterly fascinating. We got four hours, yeah, you said? (laughs) (laughs) I think we could uh, just scratch the surface in four hours. Yeah, we could do a whole show. And then if we do, uh, if we program in a 38 part series in the next year, (laughs) then we might get to the bottom of it. Right. Okay, so I've got a chapter in the book which addresses the question of or the aspect of Paul is dead, PID, as it's known. So this is the very widespread suggestion that the original James Paul McCartney of the Beatles died in 1966 and was replaced by an imposter that's been taking his place ever since. So for anyone that is coming across this subject area for the first time, or, you know, what I've just said is the first rendering of it that's come across their radar... I know that the initial reaction is going to be, that's ridiculous. They're going to scoff at it. They're going to dismiss it straight away because it sounds impossible. And I was the same because I remember hearing this years and years ago, probably in the 1980s when I was at school. Uh, There were a couple of other kids that came in with a copy of the Abbey Road album and said, oh, this album is supposed to show that Paul McCartney's dead because he's walking barefoot across this zebra crossing. And I failed to make the connection at the time. And I thought, well, why does a bloke walking across a zebra crossing with no shoes on mean he's dead? That's ridiculous. Of course, that's what I thought because I'd not looked into it. But now I have looked into it because this is a subject which uh, I was alerted to when I started to do the research for this book. And it was intended to take up a paragraph of my chapter on the Beatles. I was just going to pay lip service to this conspiracy theory that Paul McCartney is really dead. But as I looked into it, you know, I talked earlier about having 12 windows open on my laptop at any given time. When I was researching Paul is Dead, I had about 30 windows open and I was flitting between this resource and that resource and this blog site and that video. And very quickly, that paragraph grew to a chapter of 15,000 words to the point that it's the largest chapter in the book. And it has to be, because if you're going to do this subject proper justice, you have to really delve into it. You have to look at all the symbolic clues and all the facts fact-based forensic evidence to support the idea, although I would say it's a fact, that the person we think of in the world today as Paul McCartney is not the original Paul McCartney. There's all kinds of evidence to back, back this up. It would seem that those forces that controlled the Beatles placed a whole bunch of symbolic clues on albums, specifically the Sgt. Pepper album cover, which is absolutely replete with little visual indicators to show you that the person you think of as Paul McCartney is not the original Paul, that he's been replaced. You know, there's all kinds of occult symbolism, but there's some stuff that's just, you know, blatant and really in your face. And then for those people that reject all that, they don't go in for spirituality and esoteric mystical stuff. They think it's all bollocks you know they are maybe of a left brain scientific mindset and they like fact-based hard peer-reviewed forensic evidence well you get that as well not least from a couple of italian forensic experts who had worked for a very long time with the italian judiciary and police on solving crimes they set out in 2009 in an article for wired magazine in italy to disprove this ridiculous idea that paul mccartney could have been replaced they thought it's going to be so easy we'll compare some photographs and we'll be able to put this one to bed in five minutes so they set out to do that 
And they ended up coming to the exact opposite conclusion, which was that when you compare photographs of Paul McCartney from before 1966 to photographs of him afterwards, you are looking at two different people. They can't possibly be the same person. They compared things like the facial shape and structure, structure of the jawline, uh, the position of the eyes, distance between the eyes, the height, all this sort of stuff. The height is a big giveaway because McCartney, after 1966, just seemed to shoot up several inches. So there's pictures of him with his girlfriend Jane Asher where prior to 1966 they're pretty much the same height and then afterwards he's towering above her uh, for the short while that he continued to go out with her. And then you could compare his height to the other Beatles as well. But it's not just that. There are so many clues. And when it comes to... uh, indicators that are said to have been placed in the Beatles music in terms of backmast messages in terms of little subliminal things that were placed into their recordings there are so many that to list them you know takes hours and hours and hours and there's videos you can go to on YouTube that list all these clues and uh, show you little video snippets and show you the colour of Paul's eyes changing and uh, he he seems to change his hands you know because the original Paul was a left-handed bass player whereas the replacement was seemingly right-handed and he had to retrain himself to play left-handed. But, you know, that, that does appear to have actually taken place. There's a great movie on YouTube called The Winged Beetle, a sort of documentary, which is a big compilation of all the Paul is Dead clues. And how many do you want? You know, they just go on and on and on and on. So anyone that really wants to get into this, have a look at The Winged Beetle on YouTube, the full-length documentary. There was a 2012 update as well, which is worth looking at, but do try and track down the original. And there's also a book, which my copy arrived today, actually. I've not looked into it yet, but I heard about it quite a while back. And it's called The Memoirs of Billy Shears. And the author name that's given is Thomas E. U. Harriet, although he's said to be an encoder rather than an author, because there's this cryptic cipher that runs throughout the text of this book and the book interestingly runs to 666 pages uh you know there's an intriguing number in this whole story and it purports to be the autobiography of the individual that replaced paul mccartney and his name is given as william shepherd nickname billy shears so on the Sgt. Pepper album, on the opening track, you have the band introducing you to the one and only Billy Shears, which was the group's way of introducing the general public to this new character that had taken the place of Paul. And they were actually giving you, it would seem, his nickname of Billy Shears. It would certainly appear that this individual, his real name is William. Uh, I've heard his name given as William Campbell before as well, or William Shepherd Campbell. So there's some kind of confusion over that. Uh, the whole world of Paul is Dead is very very, very murky and the waters get muddied. But here's some interesting things that people can check out. There's a scene in The Winged Beetle where Paul McCartney, in inverted commas, walks into a recording studio where George Harrison is present. And as he walks in, Harrison says, Hello, William. Then in the movie Give My Regards to Broad Street, which is a Paul McCartney film from 1984, the McCartney character walks into a room and there's this old guy in the room and he introduces him to somebody else that's in the room and he says, do you know William? Then you have a piece of footage from John Lennon's Imagine movie from when he was making the Imagine album in 1971. You have John Lennon and George Harrison sitting in a kitchen. Yoko Ono is making them tea. And John Lennon says, here we have a Beatle wife making tea for two of the Fab Four. 
And straight away, George Harrison says, the Fab Three. And Lennon says, oh yeah, the Fab Three. And then they start talking about Beetle Bill. And Lennon says, oh, Beetle Bill's not doing too well now, is he? And Harrison, I've seen that. Yeah. I've seen that. Yeah. yeah. And Harrison says, oh, he's, he's number five in Sweden now. And he goes, oh, in, in Sweden, is it? And then Lennon gives a knowing wink to the camera. There's another interview. George Harrison is on an Australian radio station giving an interview. You can get all this stuff on YouTube if you just type in the keywords like George Harrison, William, you know, or, or George Harrison 4. In this Australian radio interview, George Harrison makes two references to Paul as being four. And four is supposed to mean faux Paul or fake Paul. And it's the name that's given to this individual that's said to have taken the place of McCartney. So quite clearly, without any ambiguity, Harrison says, oh, four this. And we know we spoke to Fall about that. He's given you a clue. And, uh, you know, th- th- there's so many other uh, little indicators as well. They just go on and on and on. And it certainly seems to suggest that the other Beatles were giving people an opportunity to know that this was not the real Paul McCartney. And here we are 50 years after this replacement is supposed to have taken place. So he's supposed to have died in a car crash, according to most versions of the uh, conspiracy theory, if you want to call it that. Paul McCartney, the real one, is supposed to have got into some sort of argument in a recording studio with some versions of the story, say the other Beatles, another version of the story, the one that's in the memoirs of Billy Shears, says it was Brian Epstein, the Beatles manager. And McCartney is said to have stormed off, got into his sports car, driven at great speed through the streets of London and been involved in this terrible car accident in which he was decapitated and killed. And depending on which version of the story you go with, One version states that Brian Epstein and the other forces that controlled the Beatles got to hear of this, panicked and thought, my God, we've got to replace him quickly before the public find out about this so that the Beatles can continue with, you know, their agenda, with what it is they're required to do. And so they brought in this unknown session musician by the name of Billy Shepard, and he somehow agreed to play the part of McCartney for the rest of his days. That seems a little implausible to me in terms of somebody just happening to be available there and then that wasn't doing anything for the next 50 years that said, yeah, all right, I'll be Paul McCartney. I think it's far more compelling and plausible that the death of the original Paul McCartney is something that would have been planned for for quite some time before it happened. Incidentally, the date given in the memoirs of Billy Shears, which again purports to be written by the individual that replaced McCartney, it's supposed to be him recounting his story and sort of getting it off his chest in his latter years. The date given for the death of the original McCartney is said to be September 11th, 1966. And 1966 becomes an interesting year in the story anyway, as I go into in the book. It seems to be key to so much. And when you factor in that 666 is a very important occult number to those that control these industries, it's interesting that 1966, if you invert the nine, becomes another six and you have three sixes there. And maybe there was something significant about 1966 in terms of, you know, the ritualistic practices that these individuals like to go into. So that's the date that was given for the death of the real McCartney. And I think it's far more likely that if it happened, and I certainly believe that it did, because the evidence just tells me that it did, and I go where the evidence takes me, uh, it was something that was planned for. And it was some form of a ritual sacrifice in line with the belief systems 
of these very dark forces that have controlled the music industry for so long. So it would have been planned to take McCartney out. And this Billy Shepard, who incidentally had a history, uh, a small history going back a few years before 1966 of being active in the industry, he was part of a group called Billy Pepper and the Pepper Pots. Isn't it interesting that the first album after the McCartney replacement was Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band? And Uh Billy Shepard is credited with being the Billy of uh, Billy Pepper and the Pepper Pots. So he's said to be the individual that had been groomed to take the role of McCartney. So there would have been a certain amount of changing of his appearance that was needed. So probably some sort of plastic surgery. Uh, A whole load of musical training to get his voice to sound similar to the original McCartney and his guitar playing to be passed off as similar enough to the original McCartney. See, this is an objection that a lot of people have, particularly diehard Beatles fans. They say there's no way anyone could replicate McCartney's voice as closely as this individual is said to. There's no way he could have written all these great songs that uh, appeared after 1966 in line with the original McCartney. But when you get into the memoirs of Billy Shears, and if you're prepared to accept that these may well be the uh, stories coming from this individual that would be in a position to know all this stuff, there is talk of a great deal of channeling of the original spirit of Paul into this new guy's body. And this would account for how he's able to match his voice so closely and how he's able to replicate some of his mannerisms and some of his you know, musical skill. If you are prepared to accept that there can be some sort of interdimensional channeling going on on a spiritual level, then that would explain some of that. I know a lot of people are going to have a hard time with that kind of explanation, but for those that are really seeking the truth in this subject, it's something that I think is worth bearing in mind and at least considering. You know, nobody said this subject was simple. That's why I said we need about 38 (laughs) episodes to go into it. I I think all three of us in here, I think our minds are blown on that one for sure. Right, right. I I, I wanted to ask you before we, because we're we're a little running out of time, but I wanted to, uh, you need to get back to what you're doing, but uh, the death of Christina Grimmie, are you familiar with that? That uh, the the chick, the girl that was on The Voice that was killed in Orlando. And it was odd that she was killed the night before the Pulse nightclub shooting. Right. Are you familiar with this? Yeah. Actually, I was at a conference last weekend, the Open Mind Conference in Copenhagen, Denmark. And there's this Danish researcher, a great guy by the name of Ule Damagard. And his specialist area is just calling out all these fake-ass, bullshit, staged terror events used... Uh, staged using crisis actors and haven't we had a summer of that you know one after another after another it's been hard to keep up with them all especially in europe you know it seems there was a point in the summer where every other day you were having one of these shooting events and uh you know ule damagard does a great job of breaking down just how ridiculous and infantile the official stories of many of these things are and the video to his presentation at the open mind conference is actually available for anyone to watch and i would thoroughly recommend that they do it's about two hours if you go to gaia tv in denmark and do a search for ule damagard's presentation at the open mind conference copenhagen uh, you'll find it or if people can't find the link they can email me and i'll send them the link but he breaks down uh, all these common elements that we get such as 
the CCTV footage that we're given is always grainy and, you know, out of focus and you can't really make out what's going on. And often it's not working at all. We're just told the cameras weren't working that day, you know. And there are so many suspect elements. You have all these really unconvincing crisis actors. And there was this one woman, I think it was the Orlando shooting where she, she's giving an interview to the camera and you can see a green screen reflected in her glasses showing that she's actually inside a studio and the backdrop yeah, I of think the street, I've seen that yeah yeah the backdrop of the street that she's supposed to be on is actually being projected onto a green screen so Ule goes into all of this and he mentioned the Christina Grimmy thing and I didn't know much about it before his presentation but yeah he mentioned the fact that it did coincide with all this stuff that seemed to be happening at the same time in Orlando. So you had the gay club, the gay nightclub shooting. And he also showed this really bizarre, unsettling video featuring the Queen of England and Prince Harry, although he's not, he's not really uh, her grandson. He's just presented as her grandson. He's really James Hewitt's son, but that's another matter. And in this video, they cut to uh, Barack and Michael Obama. And they've got, you know, these three sort of security guys behind them and they're all doing this thing uh, uh do it doing this hand thing and just saying boom you know drop the bomb boom and it all seems to be in relation to these sporting games that were happening in orlando at the time so you've got the christina grimmy thing the gay nightclub shooting and this really strange video when does the queen of england ever appear on video apart from her christmas message every year it's not something you ever see so the fact that they wheeled her out for this one must mean that it was deemed very important in the minds of, you know, the controllers to have her involved in this video. There was some sort of predictive programming going on. There was some sort of letting you know, you know, placing the truth in plain sight. The Christina Grimmy thing, um, Ule showed some video footage which purports to be the CCTV footage of her murder. And it's very suspect, to say the least. You know, you can't really make out what's going on. And uh, it does look to be contrived and staged as far as I can make out. So it wouldn't surprise me if that event didn't actually go off the way we're told it did. And again, why would that even be a surprise to anyone that's paying attention to what's going on in this insane world in which we live? So I can't really add any more to it than that, to be honest. But, uh, you know, the official story of everything is usually a lie. And I, I, so, just, found it, hmm. I just found it extremely odd that she was killed one night and then the very next night was the Pulse nightclub shooting. Well, the timing is very suspect. Extremely yeah. strange. Yes. It really is. It really is. Yeah. Well, Mark, uh, would love to have you back on. I think we should do a show just on the Paula's dead thing. Cause we could get it a lot more detail on it, but oh, it sure could. Yeah. Where could, what book do you have? What's the title of your book and, uh, where can people get it? And what are you working on next? Okay, so pretty much everything I've spoken about today is contained within my book, Musical Truth. You can get that on Amazon if you just search for Musical Truth Mark Devlin. There's a paperback, a hardback, and a Kindle version available on Amazon. It's also available on Barnes & Noble. If anyone wants to buy a signed copy from me direct, and they can pay by PayPal, then they're welcome to get in touch. They can drop me an email, mark at markdevlin.co.uk, and then I can sign a copy and mail it out to you myself self so feel free to do that the next thing i'm working on is going to be the follow-up book because as i mentioned earlier in the interview i've come across a whole load of information since publishing the book and i know so much more now that i really need to be putting out a second volume so there's going to be musical truth too and my plan is to spend 
next year writing it, because it's certainly going to take all year, and then get that out in, hopefully, early 2018. So that's simply going to be called Musical Truth 2, and it's going to contain all the information that I didn't get into the first book, but just to continue the whole story. So look out for that one. And there's information about the book at musicaltruthbook.com, and my main website is markdevlin.co.uk. Excellent. Thank you, Mark, so much for coming on. Staying alive for us, guys. We're going to take a little break here on Conspiranormal. All right. Welcome back to Conspiranormal. Is a another interesting one. I was talking to Adam um, a few weeks ago when he told me we were going to do this, and I'd said that when we uh, when I first joined the show a couple of years ago, I had mentioned to him that I really wanted to do something that was sort of music industry related because I know there is a lot of these obscure little um, uh, conspiracies, like the, the Paul is dead thing, and you know, there's there's tons of other little ones. I did not know today's show was going to like be so dark and nefarious right off the bat <laughs> yeah. yeah well you kind of can't you kind of can't avoid that when you're talking about jimmy savile it's pretty dark oh, stuff. yeah absolutely um for sure we we have jeff sitting hello with us. hello and uh when he started talking about paul's consciousness being put into the fake paul I look over at Jeff and just it was pretty it was pretty classic. I should have taken a picture at that point. I, that that was uh that was some interesting stuff. Very interesting. And also the he's made sort of a mention to it and correct me if I'm wrong, but he talked about uh they were sort of doing some plastic surgery on him and this being in the 60s it's interesting. I wanted to get his take on having that technology back then, but yeah, the, I'm not sure what all they could do back then. My my favorite yeah. Paul is dead thing is the uh, the earlobes. You know about that, right? There's a you know two vastly different genetic traits that lead to having either attached or detached earlobes, and Paul on one side of the timeline has one, and Paul you know after sixty six or whatever is the other. Yeah, I think he did mention he mentioned the Italian doctors that looked yeah. into it, the forensic scientists, and that's what they that was the main thing that they focused on was the earlobes. Now that you mentioned that. Is that something that can't can't be faked and I mean Right. It's it's a it's a fascinating rabbit hole. And like I said, I'd love to do a whole show about it because it is such a interesting thing. It'll definitely get your mind going in a hundred di different directions. But I, I've always been very skeptical about it. I, I think at the very least, the the Beatles found out about the rumor, at least in probably towards the end of the of the 60s. I think that at least they did put some clues in to try to to try to get more and more publicity going and and more and more. Uh, word of mouth going I, I think they'd like to mess a little bit with their fans so that i think at the very least that's possibly what happened although that was compelling to me when he mentioned because i've actually seen that footage of george harrison 
speaking to John Lennon when they're recording the Imagine album. In fact, that's in the documentary Imagine, where they talk about Beetle Bill. And I always thought that that was just a, you know, that was obviously their code word for for Paul McCartney. And they were kind of on the outs with Paul at that point. This is 1971. And I always thought that was the reason why. But when it becomes compelling, if the guy's name was Billy Shears or his stage name was Billy Shears and they're referring to him as as Beetle Bill, but that was kind of that was kind of fascinating. It's interesting stuff. I'm a Paul is dead guy. I think it happened. You think it happened? Yeah. I don't know how deep or how nefarious it is or how, you know, like the circumstances surrounding it. But right. just from looking into it, I, I think that something fishy did happen. It was probably just because there was like, well, we're making a ton of money off this band. We can't lose the steam. Yeah. A lot of the girls are, you know, they're they're on Team Paul. So I, I don't want to go in a weird because I'm about to go in a totally weird direction. But that to me is so... It kind of has no meaning to it. Why aren't we looking at the Judas Priest trial in 1985? Why aren't we looking at that where we've got this, we've got two drug addicts whom were paranoid, paranoid schizophrenic, all of that stuff. Uh-huh. They actually get to the court system. They, the music of Judas Priest gets blamed for their death. Right. In our country, that happens. What kind of weird paranoid society do we live in that Judas Priest, whom is got, contains one of the greatest singers ever, uh, is, how is it that that gets so far in? But this, you know, this uh, Paul conspiracy, it, it's really gotten legs here lately. But how is it that we haven't reexamined this? Uh, it, do you guys know much about that trial? Do you I guys... do know some things about it. You're talking about the two teenagers that made a suicide pact. Yes. Uh, over a Judas Priest song that they said, or, or subliminal messages that said, do it. Yes. Or something like that. And they, uh, one, the, I think either one shot the other or they both yes. shot themselves. One actually was killed right away and one survived and lingered for a while he blew his face off but later on he uh later on he wound up killing himself they were both uh drug addicted teens and the fact that they had a judas priest cassette tape in their back pocket one of them did uh they started to kind of go that direction and you know he got his mom convinced of this and then it was a total money plea but american society the the mainstream picked up on it and was like oh heavy metal music there it is it's mind control it's doing all this stuff to our teens which is completely ridiculous and it's to me it seems so appalling that no one you know everybody's like well that happened as a matter of fact side story uh, my aunt i remember a long long time ago when it was happening I said something about heavy metal music and my aunt was like, oh, you don't need to listen to that because that uh, there's a mind, there's subliminal messages in that. And that's where all that came from. And it was such a that song was a was a cover of a spooky tooth song, which well, is a German band. I think that's what Adam was bringing up early in the interview was that he kind of ties a lot of that stuff back into sort of the satanic right. panic sort of realm, which is exactly what that that was. But no one goes back and says, hey, we're idiots. We shouldn't have done this. This shouldn't have made it to trial. These well, two are messed up kids. And- well, but because, the, yeah, and I think everybody acknowledges that now. And actually, it wasn't the 
wasn't the case eventually thrown out? What weren't they deemed to? Oh, not, absolutely, because uh, it's mean, ridiculous. Yeah, and it took years actually for it first for it to come to any kind of trial. Yeah, I know what you're talking about. I remember seeing Rob Halford. You know, but the damage uh, was done. I mean, the, now right. you know that was what started the whole like 1980s panic of this heavy metal music's got subliminal messages in it, and uh, it's saying kill yourself, which is ridiculous. Like Rob Halford says, and I, I don't know his exact quote, but he was like, "If that was the case, I would have told them, give me all of your money." He's like, "I wouldn't <laughs> have had you kill the, kill anybody." The this was during the era, like Rob mentioned. This was during the era. Of the satanic panic. Right, yes. And this is an era that pretty much lasted from probably the early 80s all the way to probably the mid-90s. Mm-hmm. And the reason the satanic panic, I mean, we could talk about some other time how it started, and I'd love to do a show about this. But I'd love to be on that show. It, the reason that it ended was because a lot of innocent people were being convicted of crimes that they did not commit. And ridiculous stuff like the McMartin preschool case where they said that they were taken, kids were taken into these tunnels underneath the the basement of the preschool and right. there were these satanic rituals that were being done. These people, their lives were ruined. Um, uh, the Memphis been, Three. The, what, uh, exactly. That's what I was going to get to. The West hmm. Memphis Three. Sorry. Uh, that was another one that was had that satanic panic tinge to it and they were wrongly convicted in my opinion there's people that still differ on that but and we we talked about that a few shows ago um but and there was also uh people in a small town in california that were also had been wrongly convicted so this kept on happening, this whole satanic panic, and the people were – FBI went and looked at it and said there's never any sacrifices. None of this stuff ever, ever right. happened. Uh, now, there's people that dispute that view. I've had Russ Dizdar on who claims that it still goes on, and I'm sure that Mark Devlin probably would agree with him as well just from a different point of view. Next month, we're going to have a someone that has done a documentary on satanic ritual abuse. Now – uh, not to go too far into it, I do believe that there is stuff that's going on um, f- by the elite and by people in high places because mm-hmm. uh, we talked about Jimmy Savile. That is something that has definitely gone on. If you study the Dutroux affair in Belgium, mm-hmm. which was a child sex ring, which is some heinous stuff. If you study the Franklin cover up in um, Omaha, Nebraska, which is another a uh, huge cover up that they were putting they were pretty much running in ch- child male prostitutes to high republican ranking officials you know i do believe that stuff definitely goes on it's just those people are not prosecuted it's usually mom and pop somewhere in a daycare that got or right. the west memphis 3 those people got wrongly accused yeah, the so poor eventually kids. it became it became discredited and it fell out of the mainstream. But then you did get bands like Marilyn Manson that said they were satanic and all these openly satanic bands that played on that imagery well, of, having... satan- of satanic panic. So it's like there is a big feedback loop going on with a lot of this stuff. I the uh, I think that it was it's really it was created and perpetuated by 
the media and right. to quote the the uh, singer of Morbid Angel, I mean the reason that all these bands kind of went that direction was it was they were less about Satanism and worshiping this um, this made up creature Satan. They were more about whatever binds our hands, whatever tries to control us, we rebel against, yeah, and that's that's, that's what the Satan. Yeah, that yeah. was what that's actually what it was. It wasn't this creature that was created in the Renaissance by painters. It was uh, the uh, can you believe it? I don't believe in Satan. I would, Satan. Be, I would beg to differ on that. But OK, um, we can talk more about that. We can talk more to this. But um, at any rate, in, in my personal belief, there's no such thing. And so the um, they were taking this imagery and that kind of thing, because it's like, what can what can really shock people? What can really like get yeah. under their skin? It's yeah. like, well, we're going to take the whole like wasp, you know, Anglo-Saxon uh, right. community and we're going to use its most uh, feared symbolism against it. And right. it, go it goes on now because you see that with the Satanist and we've explored some mm -hmm. of this on the show. You know, there's this huge uh, Satanist movement right now to say that, well, you know, if you can have the. Ten Commandments displayed at a government building, then we should be able to put our statue of Baphomet. If, right. you, if you can have Christian after-school clubs, we should have <laughs> after-school Satan, which they came up with. And all this is is a way to challenge First Amendment rulings. Yes. I mean, that's that's what it is. But you will see a lot of my fellow evangelical Christians getting all worked up about it and it becomes it just becomes a huge feedback loop again mm -hmm. because all of a sudden, that just gives the Satanist more ammunition. If we would just ignore these people, maybe they would just go away. Right. But it keeps happening. Yes. And another thing that keeps happening is these police shootings. I want to talk about this mm. because this has been yet another week. Yeah, every week we have one to talk about. Of massacres, shootings. You know, we just had this, uh, I, I don't even know what to, to say about this mall shooting that happened in, um, Washington state other than that the guys from Turkey and it looks like it could and they're saying is no terrorist ties but could be yet another ISIS inspired person it's very uh, similar to what happened last week with the Somali kid that went in and stabbed people in a mall so mm. there you go but um, I'm not going to mention that or talk I don't even really want to talk about that one I want to talk about what happened when in Tulsa Oklahoma and Charlotte North Carolina and that's the shooting of Terrence Crutcher and the other guy, Keith Lamont Scott in Charlotte, both black men. Uh, the one in Charlotte sparked off a ton of riots and protests. Did anybody see that footage? Yes. Yep. Mm -hmm. I, saw. I have a friend that just recently moved back home mm -hmm. to Charlotte. Good time to do it. Yeah. Uh, it's, um, I, I, I don't know how to, there is so much of this. I think, I mean, you know, we have this, uh, it is certainly a like racist leaning society, the way that we have our rules set up, because there's a, there's an excellent book out there and his name escapes me, but he was an ex Baltimore police officer. And he talked about how essentially, you know, the police were, they were there to, uh, you know, they, they had no way out. They were like, they had to sell drugs to feed their family, but also they basically shook down these poor people 
you know, it, it is, there's that, but also at the same time, there's other, I mean, uh, I can't remember his name. This is so bad. Cause I can't remember names <laughs> of all these people, but there was a, um, there's a homeless guy. He was actually a redheaded guy. And I can't remember if his name was Thomas or his last name was Thomas. But he was in a situation. And this is horrible. Don't look up the video. But this poor guy, there was two officers. And um, I think one was Hispanic. And then I don't know what the other one was because I, I just couldn't get through the whole thing. But in either case, there is this weird thing where the poor guy was he had his skull bashed in. And there's this weird thing about giving a, a human being absolute power over another one. He is going to abuse it. It's going to happen. I mean, you can talk about the, the Stanford thing, you know, yeah, but it's Stanford like prison experiment. It is when any time that somebody, because there's this one moment where, you know, they, they go to grab him and he's screaming for his dad. I mean, it's like, it's horrible. They bash in his skull, but he fights back a little bit. And the one guy's like, Oh, it's on. And it's sort of like any time that this, like, my authority is tested, any time you question my authority, well, that's it. That, you know, here we go. I'm going to go as violent as it, you know, whatever. And another, the Black Lives Matter, they bring up an excellent point. The one guy that I can't remember his name, um, they put him in the back of a paddy wagon. He shows up at the, uh, at the police station and he's dead. Now, if that would have, yeah. if I know if somebody would have happened more than one time, right? Exactly. But if it's you or I, then we've got some explaining to do. Whereas these police, they have absolute power, and we've got to figure out how to stop that. That's just yeah. that's you know. Well, I'll tell you, the one that really bothered me was the Terrence Crutcher one. That bothered me to the core this week. Now, I'm sorry, I'm I, so terrible with names. Which one was that? That was the one in Tulsa. Oh, okay, all right. Uh hit home for me that the guy was born August 16th, 1976. He's literally a day older than me. And just for some reason, it just made me think, you know, we were lied to by the police in Tulsa initially because they said that he did not have his hands up. Well, when they released the video, he had his hands up the entire time. Nothing threatening. Yeah. He was pacing. You do see that in the video. Um, and another aspect of it is why was he shot when you had one officer with a gun and you had another one with a taser? So he was shot and tasered at the same time. Why did they not just pull their tasers out? There was also this the cops stated that he the he was reaching into the window for his for something and in the footage you can clearly see that the window is closed so he's not it's rolled up he's not reaching into the window for anything so there so already there's these contradictions and with these two contradictions already in place we're then supposed to believe that there was PCP in the car. Okay, maybe there was. Maybe there wasn't. Completely but it's hard irrelevant. to it's hard to believe it is it is irrelevant. It's hard to believe what 
they say when they have already lied yeah two times mm. about two different aspects there was also a lot of controversy being made on the fact that the guy in the helicopter said that's one big bad dude um i'm sure a lot of people were looking at that and saying that that is a racist thing and it probably is but i'm also looking at it as it's also an impersonal thing as if this guy is not human he's just considered a threat hmm. um i do think that this officer i do think that she made a mistake she made a very bad mistake in killing this man that one did not spark off as much protests or as much ire as what happened in North Carolina. Again, what we are told is a man was reading a book. Apparently his wife was somewhere around him in his car. They were picking up his daughter the police pull up to serve a warrant for what I believe is for marijuana use or, mar- or, or serve a warrant on somebody else. And apparently this guy got out of the car and was, they say he was brandishing a gun. The police say he's brandishing a gun. The family, his wife says he had a book in his hand. Whatever it was in his hand, he did not drop, and then he was shot by the cop, by a black cop, by the way, not a white cop. And again, it became extremely unclear as that city basically burned. The police did not release the video. They've kept saying they would refuse to release the video. And that just the suspicion immediately in my mind of, okay, why are they not releasing the video? Maybe because it shows something that well, they don't want us to see. And there's part of what they Jeff did release was talking it about last earlier. night, by the way, the only thing our, our, our whole system, our whole government was founded on the principle that people are inherently dumb and make mistakes and that they need to be kept in check by other people who have, you know, different needs and motivations. And it's the whole checks and balances system. It's the only way that it works. So I, I mean, there's got to be some way to to introduce like full transparency on these officers. Yeah, I've heard things from both sides. I've heard that uh, now cops are being told to go aggressive. Just, you know, hey, it's you or them. Go, 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 go. And then I've also heard guys that were actually cops in Chicago that were like, I was a cop for 12 years. I never pulled my gun once. So I don't know from being an outsider. Well, and. You know, the, the, the percentage of, of officers that are committing these heinous acts is minuscule compared to the number of officers that are out there. That's true. And we, we know from dealing with people on a daily basis that there's, you know, these overly aggressive testosterone fueled. Right. I'm ready to go at the drop of a hat people everywhere. So, I mean, it might just be, you know, we got these personality types that are in a position of, you know, power or they you know they feel it like least bit threatened and they instantly they they go into rage mode or they do you know mm-hmm. whatever they're doing are there are there are they are told that this particular person or you know if you're in any kind of danger that you need to react with just 
killing someone with shooting them and not and yeah. and not necessarily shooting them below the waist or you know you know taking their leg out which will stop someone well you know, it, it, well, it, it yeah. could have stopped someone, you know, like Terrence Crutcher. Okay, why didn't they just shoot him in the leg? Not that that's preferable. I would, would have rather he not been shot. Right. But why, why, why shoot him in the leg? But all of our military officers, they have a list. It's a code Thank of conduct you. that they have to go through that, you know, a kill shot is like way down, like number 15 or something. Thank you. I think maybe some psychological conditioning yep. for these officers would go a long, long well, way. Well, there there are talks that they, I mean, I've heard this from, and this is an outside source, but I've, it's sort of like taking a football player, putting pads on him, making him suit up, and then just saying, okay, now you sit on the bench and just get ready. And so, therefore, it's just sort of like, you know, when do we release the hounds? Yes. You know, this made the rounds on Facebook. And I thought this is very interesting and a very good point. And I think this is this is right where you were talking about, Rob. I was in Iraq and even in an actual theater of war, unless you were immediately fired on. We had several steps to go through before kill shots. We had rules of engagement and escalation of force cards. My command made us carry on us at all times with those regulations. Even when a car possibly carrying explosives was barreling down on us, we were taught to exhaust several steps of warnings before killing. Hand signals, flags, pop smoke, flares, warning shots to the sides, disabling shots, then kill shots. So for the life of me, I can't figure out why on the streets of the United States of America, police officers go immediately to murder and people are just like, well, in the heat of the moment. Right. That's I keep I keep hearing that over and over again from these yeah. you know and, and we and we've talked about It might the, be a reason, but it's not a justification. The irony here is that we've talked about how the part of the problem is the militarization of the police and the militarization in their attitudes. However, the irony is they're not getting the training that someone in the military would right. get to de escalate a situation true yeah doesn't make any sense well there was uh years ago i took like a hunter safety course and they it, the the gun culture has changed everything because those i mean I, the instructor was like you don't need a handgun you don't want to do that because when you pull a handgun on somebody and he's got a handgun you're forcing him to make a decision and now it's like get a gun get an ar15 get a get you know get a yeah. destroy everything gun guns 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 and so that being said, it's interesting how things have changed now and that whole. I want to say this about Keith Lamont Scott to build on what you're saying there is that if he had a gun, if he did, and on the video that his wife filmed that you, that I thought about playing, but it's just, it's far too many curse words and it's, it's grueling to listen to because this woman is watching her husband being shot right in front of her. And it, but in the video, you can, you can clearly hear her say that he doesn't have a gun. Uh, and the cops say that, that, that he does. And she also says that he has a TBI, which is stands for traumatic brain injury. Um, if he had a gun, put yourself in his position you are sitting in a car with a book in your lap. You're minding your own business. And all of a sudden, these police cars 
come up in two or three of them at the same time, pull out, pull out with these guns in their hands, armed to serve a warrant on someone else. However, you don't know that you don't know what is going to happen every day. You get this. You have heard about all these people that have been killed by police. You think in your mind, they are coming for me. And if he does have a traumatic brain injury, as his wife said, then he probably was not thinking straight. So he probably did go ahead and grab his gun in the thought of possibly self-defending himself because he doesn't know. Yeah. Well, people and keep... It, and, it, and, it, and it just added up to this incredibly tragic situation where this man lost his life. I, I still go back to this thing. I don't care if you've got a brain injury or not. Any normal person, put them there, have five people with guns pointed on you and see if you make good decisions. Right. It's not going to happen. This yeah, is the deal. Yeah. This is why you need to approach this yeah. situation in a different manner. And, and listen, there's an attitude. There is an attitude in the in the black community, especially they do not re- they do not look at cops as someone to respect in fact they have been his- we know this factually that they have been historically mistreated so they look at cops as just another gang basically right they look at them as having just another gang mentality and i'm not saying that you know it it it, it does seem to happen when you see those thin blue lines on people's cars you know it's almost like they are they see themselves as a gang. They see themselves as as a, as a brotherhood almost. Mm-hmm. And you know, I want I, I want to step lightly here because I do respect the police. I do think they do a good job. Right. For instance, in our city in Nashville, remember there was a little riot or some kind of incident at the projects. You guys actually mentioned this on Leisure Hour. Yes, there was a riot at the projects, and this cop actually got assaulted. By by a young black man and backed away, backed down. Mm-hmm. If he had killed that kid, we would have had Ferguson here in Nashville. I, that's what I it said. It would have happened. Yeah. And so it, at that point, you, you know, he used his better damn judgment. The guy could see a little bit down the road to say, if I do this, it's going to start something. So he let the kid hit him. And it was done. Mm-hmm. And. It just so I, this this kind of stuff it it, 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 and as I've said before, it's not just a black thing. And my point is on that is that if Keith Lamont Scott saw these people, he just thought they were a threat. He didn't see a cop; he saw a threat to his person. And it turns out he was right. And of course, people will say, "Well, why didn't you comply? Why didn't you drop the gun?" Well, you're not no making good decisions question. in this. And the more this tension keeps building, the more and more we keep seeing these situations. It's, nothing right. is happening to to diffuse it, you know. And, and meanwhile, the wife is yelling, "You know, he doesn't have a gun. He's not going to do anything to you. He has a TBI, a traumatic brain injury. Don't do anything." The cops are not listening to this woman. There's a well, don't get me started on the whole in Nashville. Basically, a lot of the police force is and this is going to probably get a lot of backlash, but it is a revenue generating 
organization. That's why there are so many DUIs everywhere. That's why if you drink one beer, you're going to get... And I'm not saying that it's cool to drink and drive, but... Our, they are so geared towards, you know, we got to find something that we can convict you on so we can get more money from it. And, you know, if you're, let's say your laptop gets stolen, you can call the police and file something, but they're going to laugh you out of the, they're just like, what do you think we're going to do? But the whole police force, I mean, I'll give you a prime example. Uh, My neighbor had a party and it got out of control. And um, we all called the police. The whole people in the neighborhood, you got to call the police. This is out of control. They're firing guns at each other, blah, 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 blah. No one, the the lady told me online, and this is 911. She's like, oh, okay, well, we'll send somebody out there. Nobody came for hours. No one's road. Wouldn't you know, <laughs> wouldn't you know, a kid got his head bashed in. And they were just like, well, we're too busy to get over there. And it's like, what are you doing? This is basically a, a, you know, an out of control situation. What are you doing? Well, we're giving DUIs and we're stopping people and, you know, we're, we're generating money instead of hassling the homeless. Yeah. And like I say, this kid got his head bashed in. It was a terrible situation. And, uh, my neighbor told the cops straight up, he's like, if you guys would have been here, none of this would have happened. And so it's, there needs to be restructuring with the police department. We've got to end this war on drugs. That is the Thank stupidest you. thing ever. I was say we have wasted yeah. so much with that. It's just a dumb, illogical system. When that those cops serving that warrant were probably serving a warrant to search for drugs. Exactly, because and I, that's yeah. all they do is right. uh, there is no there's no crime fighting. It's you know, hey, we've got to generate money. We've got to do all this. Our, some of our police officers make police officers make well over $70,000. I don't think that that's bad. I want you to make a ton of money because I want smarter people in there. And um, again, I'm not against the police system. I think that there needs to be some restructuring, though. There needs to be actual crime fighting as opposed to revenue generating. I want to say this about Charlotte, too, is that, as I mentioned before, the policeman that shot him was um was was a black man the um chief of police is a black man so and every representative that i saw speaking to the press was a black man or a black woman um except for the mayor of charlotte so this is not in some ways it is but it is not just a black white issue it is not just a white police man or woman killing a black man or woman in this case it was completely different this is an issue that affects everybody police brutality police being out of control it affects everyone in this country more white people are killed than black people statistically by police Mm. it's just that our media has blown it out of proportion. This is what we were talking about the, the satanic panic thing. You know that they have they have really engineered a lot of this to be a black white issue. That's what kills me about the Black Lives Matter movement. Not that they're not doing some good things, but it's not just black people being killed. And it, like I said, it affects everybody. So I really think in Charlotte. When this happened, there were problems that existed before, just as they existed in Ferguson. And this was just the straw that broke the camel's back and caused those riots to occur. 
Well, the I I don't disagree with the Black Lives Matter. I just think that they're going about it in sort of a wrong way because they're kind of isolating or they're kind of uh, excluding certain people. Right. Look at um, and this is going to really anger some people, but look at the Tea Party movement. They had no logical anything to stand on but oh, here come the emails yeah <laughs> to but, jeff heim and- <laughs> no, no 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 don't say my last name but they had <laughs> no logical you know they kept switching you know well we're strictly economical and we're this that and the other but they had no real logical thing to stand on but as bill maher says they put on their sunday best they got people elected they did uh, they sort of went about it the right way and they actually became a political force yeah i mean they almost became another party which is unheard of in america so that's what i think you've got to start organizing in a proper way and getting your message because i don't think they have a bad message you've got to get it in the right you know light and so you can't just uh, isolate and just keep people you know oh we can't have any white people around that agree with us or that kind of thing you know which is sometimes the way that they sort of come off and so there's a real divide and conquer uh, tactics that are that are going on and we all know how that works out exactly but okay. i you know i have been uh i i've been in situations with white and black cops where they've gotten aggressive with me and you know me i'm an awesome member of society um <laughs> the uh i mean i'm very cool if you don't know but um the uh just because I made them laugh. I sort of diffused the situation, which yeah. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm being kind of braggadocious. I shouldn't, but I sort of like, you know, because I diffused the situation, it could have really ramped up and been really, really bad. But it was like, okay, I'm going to let you be the boss here. And I'm just Mr. Little Funny Man here. I, so I, I think that here in Nashville, I have a feeling that, um, Police are getting really good training here in Nashville for yes. some odd reason. This is not all across the board. Um, you know, we we talk about, and there were some good points that were brought up, especially with the the Terrence Crutcher shooting. You know, a lot of people were bringing up the fact that this guy who who uh, bombed the dumpster in in New York City. You know, there was a shootout and they took him alive, but this terrorist. But Terrence Crutcher, who was just had his hands up, you know, got killed. And there is a valid, I think there is a valid point. But another part of that aspect of that is we have to realize that these are different police forces and they are probably um, either better training or lack of training and also probably different tactics and how they deal with the community. And some of that probably does need to change. We have great cops here. We really do. There was an incident where uh, the FBI or some federal agency wanted to come in and they wanted to something that they wanted to do uh, it was to serve a warrant or or something and the police actually wouldn't the our local police would not actually let them do it because they were uh it would have violated the people's rights yeah. so you know well, i have it, way more it, good it, stories it's, it's, <laughs> right there's way then. more good stories than there are bad so but again yeah. someone would say that we're it's because we're white i don't know well, I still I am really, really for restructuring how we do things. And yeah. um, I'm not about excluding anyone. Um, I, I I just think that there should be some restructuring and some changes. 
as as I do with everything. Well, I was going to read something about uh, the link between Black Lives Matter and Freemasons, but uh, I think I'll save that for some other time because I think we're we're gone over to about almost a three hour show now. So. Um, <laughs> Join us next time, guys. We're going to have on two guests. We're going to have on a gentleman named Giovanni, who is uh, from Australia. And we're going to talk a little bit about with him about meditation. But then we have on Sarah Soderland, and we're going to start off our whole Halloween, getting back into the paranormal stuff. So I'm real excited about that. And you will hear that in about a week. But for us, it'll be a few hours from now. Oh, so. When are you coming <laughs> over on... When are you coming to the leisure hour, babe? I'll come sit. I'll come sit in at some point. Okay. I'll come uh, sit in. We at some want point. you back on. Tell everybody about the show, about the show real quick. About remind people about the leisure hour where they can find it. Uh, yes, you can find it on Stitcher, iTunes. It is called the Leisure Hour. There is, uh, I think, there's a couple of like leisure podcasts, and uh, they're lame. Um, but um, I'm just kidding. I, I haven't listened to them. But at any rate, it's out. the Leisure Hour. We um, we get together and uh, have a beverage, sometimes an adult beverage, and uh, we uh, goof off and um, complain. A lot of complaining. Usually, that's from me though, and. Um, yeah, we we have a great time in my basement, which I refer to as the Den of Sin. Um, so, yeah, do check it out. Come over. Absolutely. Rob, tell everybody where they can find us. Oh, you can find us on our nice new website. It's conspiranormal.com. Uh, we got, again, links to everything on there, social media, um, links to the, the authors that we have on the show, um, a little bio about us. Come check it out. Absolutely. And we are also on Stitcher and... Uh, Fringe Radio Network, IPVN, Deprogram Network, Dark Matter Network, and uh, everybody watch out for Phantom Clowns. They caught one in Kentucky. They did catch one. <laughs> they did catch one. I think it's a copycat, though. But, yeah. <laughs> but they are getting closer to here, Rob. Yeah, they are. They're getting closer to Nashville. They're going to be in your yard pretty soon. <laughs> All right, guys. Thanks for listening, and we'll be back next time on Conspiranormal. Oh, I missed my cue for that. I didn't know that we were doing that. Destro has designed the program that creates rock and roll music and inserts subliminal messages which will lull people into a trance and make them totally subject to our will.
one on the chart today. Don't miss their concert tonight at the Sports Arena. Cold slither. Tonight. You better get going, man. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.